Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm John Brown from riffhard.com and Monuments. My co-host is A.L. Levy, co-founder of URM Academy and guitarist from Darth. Thank you so much for being here. Since the podcast is brand new, let me tell you a little bit about it. We're having real conversations with guitarists who we consider to be the best and most relevant on earth. If you like this podcast and would like us to continue making more, please share our episodes with your friends. Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me, Al, and our guest. You spell those tags at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E. M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A-L Levy U-R-M Audio. And that's spelt E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. And leave us reviews and five stars wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We will never charge you for this podcast and will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is someone that needs no introduction, so I welcome you, Misha Mansoor from Periphery. Misha Mansoor, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thanks for having me. Hello. My pleasure. What's up, Brownie? How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm all right. Kind of, kind of overwhelmed at times. It's strange how, despite like, you know, this being like downtime for a lot of people. How uh, I feel like my schedule has been a bit overwhelming lately. I hear you. I didn't think that this would be downtime for you. I totally, totally, a hundred percent thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> this is that was that was my first mistake. I think. <laughs> was there any point where it was downtime ish, and then you realized this shit's gonna last a long time? May gotta get to work. No, not really. Just because I think at first. When we didn't really know what was going on, because I have so many different ventures and, you know, certain certain times, actually, there will be times where there's just less work all around and then it always seems to converge like with all the yep. companies and projects at once. No matter how hard I try to plan around that uh, to never happen, it always seems to, to work out that way. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, with the, the unknown of how this was going to affect the businesses and whatnot... Um, you know, we, for example, saw uh, quite a surge in sales with the GGD stuff. As you can imagine, you know, people yep. are stuck at home, you know, software recording, all that kind of stuff does pretty well. And I think a lot of uh, other companies in that sector were doing quite well. So we're like, okay, well, let's let's push this. So we were, we were putting a lot of work into that because we're like, we don't know how long that'll last. If there'll maybe be a massive dip eventually, there's some sort, sort, uh, some sort of bubble that will burst which may still be the case. I don't know. We, we just kind of went right, right to work with that and with everything else. We're just trying to find ways to sort of make the most of the, the situation. So no, there hasn't really been downtime and I don't really do well with downtime, to be honest. I'm, I'm pretty bad at it. <laughs> Honestly, I didn't expect you to have taken downtime. I kind of was expecting you to say what you just said. Uh, and I can confirm, man, like Riff Hard and URM, had a surge when this all happened too. Yeah, of it's course. Just for the same reasons. And I've been thinking too, just as you, that there might come a time where the bubble does burst, where the economic realities become 
I guess, way more widespread. And so trying to get as much done now as possible before that hits. And I kind of feel like it might. I'm expecting it to. Yeah. Well, same here because, you know, it's like it's been good and it's like, you know, if it's too good to be true, usually it's, <laughs> you know, kind of waiting for the, the other shoe to drop there and um, sort of prepping for that as well because might as well be prepared. Yeah. How early into this did you realize it was going to be a real thing? Man, that's a tough one. My my ex, who I still live with, she's still one of my best friends. She's a nurse and she, she works at um, Children's Hospital and she was just getting like all the information up front. So we were getting a lot of this information as it was coming out and it, it was changing. You know, people were still and we're still figuring stuff out about it. So there, there's a lot of stuff where just, you know, week by week we were sort of learning things. And yeah, I think maybe like a month in, I was like, oh, my God, like this. I, I just don't see any path where this sort of just disappears. Like there's just nothing, no evidence to show that it won't be around for a while, you know? And, and that continues to be the case. Like, for example, you know, coronavirus, there've been several coronaviruses and they've been around for a while. So to have a vaccine that solves this would be a novel vaccine. Now, human beings are, are great uh, in times of, uh, of need, like, you know, necessity being the mother of invention has, has created a lot of really clever inventions. But this will be the first of its type, effectively. And it will also be sort of rushed to the public uh, in record time if it's if it's available to the public anytime soon. So it's just a lot of novel stuff that we're kind of counting on to return to any semblance of normalcy. And then even finding out that, for example, the um, the antibodies only last three months. So the herd immunity thing doesn't really work currently because you're immune for about three months and then you can catch it all over again. So it's, just, it's, you know, it's this thing that's just been dynamically shifting and I don't know, I, you know, I don't know where we're going to be at in a few months. I didn't know we were going to be here now. I, I don't know if you guys had any semblance of where we'd be by now when it first started, but it's like, I didn't think we'd be here. I did think it was going to be serious right at the beginning, but I was figuring that by August or September, it would be kind of getting back to normal kind of. Yeah, I was hoping that. Yeah. But <laughs> Somewhere around May or June, I started thinking more in terms of 18 months. Yeah. I mean, this is the new normal to some degree. And even, you know, I've been thinking like, and there have been people doing studies on, on things like this, like sort of the long-term sociological and psychological impacts. Like if if people live a certain way, let's say for 18 months, 24 months, it may fundamentally change the way that they interact. For example, like like there may be less close contact. Maybe maybe it'll just be certain sorts of people. Like certain people will be very glad to be like hugging and handshaking and, and all that stuff again. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's a large sect of people that just kind of don't touch us. But if you look at, for example, like um like Japanese okay culture, right? Right. I, I'm I'm okay with it <laughs> totally too. Cool with that. <laughs> But you look at Japanese culture, you know, they've been wearing masks. Like a lot of those Asian countries deal with these sort of uh, these situations and, and they're like better prepared for it. You know, they're not shaking hands. They're like bowing all the time. There's, there's a lot of respect for like personal space there. And it's like, oh, I guess that might be a byproduct. And it may be something that we adopt, which I don't think is the worst idea either. You know, so uh, it'll be interesting to see what else kind of gets adopted as a result of this. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And what I think also is that a lot of stuff from the past that 
was frivolous that people didn't realize they didn't need won't come back. Like going to restaurants too much, for instance, things like that. I think it's going to be harder to snap back into that. Movie theaters were already on the way out. Yeah. So uh, I think a lot of the a lot of things that were already happening are just being accelerated. Like so for movie theaters. You say that, but have you seen the amount of people still going to the pub? Well, I don't know if it's the same for you guys, but in England, alcohol's a different story. <laughs> at least where I'm at, you can't do that. Like everything's closed and any dining is sort of uh just patio only, you know, like it, yep. it's outdoors. And one of the things is the transmission rate outdoors is extremely low. So it actually is pretty low risk. So this is, you know, these are the ways that people are sort of adapting um, because people do want to go out. And I mean, like, you know, this, this in inevitably leads us to the, the, the question, you know, how, how necessary are live shows of certain sizes and whatever, you know, I know I definitely miss playing live shows. I know that people miss going to live shows, but to what end and to what degree of risk do they miss going to live shows? It's going to be interesting to see how that sort of comes together because socially distanced live shows are maybe, you know, missing a, a pretty integral part of what makes a, at least like, <laughs> you know, a monuments show or a periphery show kind of fun, you know? Is yep. like the mosh pits and like people literally being on top of one another, <laughs> packed like, uh, you know, sardines in a can in a room. So it's like, this is pretty much going to be the opposite. And we've done shows where, where we played to a seated audience, you know, and they were so packed and close together, but the vibe is completely different. And I'm entirely honest, I don't like it as much. More like a concert than a show. Yeah. Or like a clinic or something like that, you know, a recital. Um, it's yeah, it's definitely got a little bit of that vibe and it's, uh, it's tough. Even if people are into it, it's just tough. I mean, it's just directly compared to like, say, you know, a mosh pit going the whole show. It's just not the same. I'm sure, uh, Brownie, you can relate to this, but you feed off of that. You directly, yeah. it's a very palpable energy that you feed off of. If that's going, you're going ham. If that, if the crowd's a bit more subdued, maybe you're focused a little more on playing better. Um, that's the way it works in my head. So it's going to be interesting to see if they become a bit more recital-ish, as you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, I remember seeing you with the Dream Theater in mm. London, and it was obviously a, an entirely seated show. Yep, and yep. Even just being in the audience, not even on stage, it's definitely a totally different vibe. Yeah. You can even feel it. It's almost like you can cut the air with a knife because yep. it just seems really awkward when you're playing yeah. really, you know, music that requires people to look like they're enjoying it. Yeah, absolutely. It's like playing a local show again. You know, when you're playing to like 15 people separated in a semicircle, that's what it's going to feel like. It's going to be back to square one. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think on that tour, it also didn't help that we were, you know, opening band and opening for Dream Theater. You know, it's a tough, it's a tough gig. Uh, the crowd doesn't always love you. I think actually probably in, in London, they, they, they liked us more than in other cities, but I'm not saying just you though. I'm saying also dream theater when it's a seated crowd. Yeah. You're, you're, you're not wrong. So, so, I mean, I, I was just saying like, it accounts for a little bit of it, but still I've seen, I, you know, I've, I've seen shows that were seated, uh, and for certain styles of music, it's great, but like, yeah, for anything sort of intense, it, it kind of just takes an element out of it. So the question will be, you know, is it worth for example, responsibly right now, 
perhaps you'd have booths or something like like you do in a restaurant or whatever, make sure everyone's six feet apart. But then not only are they seated, but there's no, <laughs> no one's even proximate. So like there's no energy at all. And you get what, like one twentieth of the capacity that you can in a venue. So is it worth it for anyone? Doesn't seem sustainable. No, no. I, I, I don't know how the mathematics would work out on that one. I mean, the only way to re- realistically make it work out is to jack up the ticket prices with a sort of scarcity play. It's like, oh, you know, this venue would normally host a thousand people, but we can fit 150. So there's only 150 tickets for this show. And, you know, 10 times the price. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Yeah. You have to charge 10 times the price of ticket. And I don't know that that, yeah, I don't know that that makes sense for anybody. So especially in a fucked up economic climate, it kind of goes against that. Right. This is the interesting thing is like, there's, I think that if there was ever anything that sort of highlighted the dichotomy uh, that we at least have in the States between like the, the rich and the poor, it's, it's this, because, you know, you have, I think, was it 50 million Americans who've lost jobs at this point? It's in that range. Yes. Right. So, so that's like one sixth, one seventh of the country is out of a job. And yet the stock market is crushing it, you know, and luxury items are actually going up in price and you have a seller's market with housing and with automobiles and and just luxury items in general. So it's this, it's very strange thing where you have these two trajectories and a, and a very, very clear split down the middle. It's almost like the, the rich and the poor is actually getting further apart. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, it, and the distinction is becoming more and more clear where, whereas it was easier to blur the lines before. Now you, you have, you know, there are people who are making more money this year and there are people who are making no money this year. And, and that, that's the sort of line in the sand. So Drawing back to the, the the concert thing, you know, there is still a market there. There still is, there still are people who will pay to go to shows and in an interesting way who probably would be more likely to pay more for the ticket or be able to afford that. Um, but it's just going to change the dynamics. Uh, I'm sort of rambling here with no actual point because I don't know what's going to happen. One thing that I think is interesting, though, is you built your career online, so... I feel like if anyone is suited for this, it would be someone like you or anyone from the generation of bands that got big online first and then kind of went out into the world, as opposed to the more traditional way where it's the other way around. Sure. Where with live shows first and then everything else. Well, we've also cultivated that a little bit because, you know, we we had a first a taste of this this oversaturation of the market when, you know, uh, streaming became a very big thing and, you know, income from, from CDs just basically dropped to nothing. Right. So the album income just dropped. Everyone went out on tour. So we started to pull back on touring, which, you know, the strategy being let's create scarcity and the effects would be twofold. One, we wouldn't sort of overstay our welcome. And two, we would make sure, you know, it's a competitive market. We'd make sure that if, you know, we're one of the tours that are out there. People are coming to our tour because there are other bands that might hit, you know, the same market two, three times a year, but we're hitting them once every year and a half to two years. So we're the show that you pick. And that worked out pretty well, but it also means that we could take more time away because us not playing a show for a year and a half in the same market is kind of par for the course. Whereas a band that was, you know, hitting that market every three or four months, 
now that's a that's a pretty stark difference. And you know, they were probably a lot more reliant on that that income because I don't think anyone is strategically trying to to hit those markets that much. But for a lot of bands, that's how they pay their bills and they need to make their rent. So you know, they're they're going out on tour. What I think is interesting about this is that I've known or been told it's been hammered into my head for like twenty years to have multiple income streams. Yep. So that's not a new idea. The no. thing is that uh, some people listened and some people didn't. And I think the people who did listen are figuring it out a little bit more easily right now. I think that even if it's one of those, I guess, uh, tough pills to swallow if what you want is to just be in a band and have that band be your sole source of income and just be that dude that tours and lives that life if that's all you want it's hard to accept that you need to do five different things but i think that the people in the mid 2000s who just were like all right this is reality right now are set up to make the most of it yeah i I mean i i I agree but you know it's it's tough because if there's anything of this highlighted it's that just in general diversifying your income can protect you I, I'll, I'll reiterate this every time. I got very lucky because it just so happened that this situation, this pandemic or whatever, I mean, something that just came out of nowhere. No one could have predicted it, whatever, right? So it came Black out Swan. of nowhere and wreaked havoc. So there's people who are very, very smart businessmen who made very, very smart decisions and then it destroyed their industry. And there's nothing they could have done about it or prepared for it. It was just they were in the wrong industry. Yep. Luckily, I'm in enough sectors that didn't get affected or that actually got that so far have had like it's had a positive impact on them. There are there are certain things that suffered, but just because I've got like so many different income streams, it's okay if some aren't so hot. And then these other ones and and, and if you spread out through sectors, it, it sort of protects you. So in general, you know, it used to be like I wanted to have income income streams because I just knew that realistically expecting to make a living from a band with the kind of music I'm playing and with my goals in music was just unreasonable. It was just not a realistic thing that would ever happen. And if I'm wrong, great. <laughs> I'll be good. That's great. But if I'm right, then I'll be glad I prepared. But now I'm actually looking at it more like it also is job security because there are things like this. Like you could be that guy who was making, you're crushing it, just touring. And you actually made that work. And now you have nothing because that was one of the sectors that got completely just demolished by this, right? Um, and it was through no fault of your own or bad planning or anything like that. So now I've kind of shifted to like, you know, the multiple income streams just as a general thing to protect yourself and give yourself a little bit of job security in a world that's a lot more unpredictable than I think we give it credit for. Well, I think that that's the key here is that the world is unpredictable. Um, maybe two years ago, Finn and I started thinking that there's a black swan coming, uh, you know, obviously we didn't know it was going to be this or when it would hit. We didn't know if it would be five years or five months or whatever. But we were just figuring we've been alive long enough to know that shit gets crazy every once in a while. Yeah. And it's been a minute since it got crazy and it's been <laughs> really good for too long. So at some point here, something's going to happen because it has to. So that's when we started really, really preparing ourselves for whatever would come. And I think that if you're not thinking about that, 
regardless if you're the dude who crushes it in one field, one sector, if you're not thinking like that, you better be really lucky. Yeah. <laughs> are, you, are you talking basically. about the financial crash, basically, right? That's kind of like the last bad thing. In 2008, yeah. 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 And I mean, that was something, again, it's like you, you might have thought you were doing everything right and, you know, some assholes fucked it up for everybody else. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's all it takes, really. So, so I think it's very easy to, to forget how fragile your situation is. This has definitely sort of put that to the front of my mind where I'm like, okay, you know, things are good right now, but there's nothing to say that there isn't a development. You know, maybe I'm talking to you guys in three months and I've lost everything. You know, I'm, I'm struggling not to be homeless. And all I can do is just prepare. You know, I have plans. I have, I have actively thought about what I will do if, if, you know, if shit hits the fans, like kind of five different phases. You got phases. the bunker ready? I, I'm not quite at the bunker level, but like, uh, because I think I'll, I, I think I'll be ill prepared for that. <laughs> I think I'll probably just die at that point, <laughs> but like, uh, but everything, everything short of that, more like if I were to lose everything, you know, what the, the plans are, how I can protect myself, uh, you know, how, how I'll sort of, uh, liquidate the assets and whatever to sort of prolong the amount of time that I don't need to be homeless, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> But yeah, it's like several several phases sort of looking at, you know, of severity, uh, looking at how I would do it. And, and it may seem like a really morbid exercise, but I think it's no. important to keep that in the back of your mind and to also be prepared. I think if that happened, that would suck, but it would also suck like a hundred times more if I was totally unprepared and didn't think there was ever a possibility of that happening. And now if it does happen, I'll be like, okay, well, this really sucks, but I have a plan, you know, and that that's comforting to me. I definitely need a plan. There's a huge <laughs> difference between yeah. those two. Yeah. Well, uh, Brown, you're, I mean, you're already, just having Riff Heart is already a huge step away from just being dependent on guitar. Yeah. Because we can do this, but you can't play a show. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And then the other thing is, is that I've always been... I guess, Misha, you're probably the same as this, that I always bought gear instead of saving money in my account. Because when you yeah. have money in your account, it just seems to, you know, disappear, trickle away. But then with the gear, I can always, you know, get rid of it if it's like, like as you were saying, liquidating the assets. But then what happens if <laughs> if no one can afford to buy the gear? <laughs> Burn it for food. So so this is an this is an interesting thing. And this is this is this is where we're at now, which is which is such an interesting development because this is something I didn't predict. I was actually kind of worried about that. I and it's a very good point. I was like, man, if something happens, um, I'll have a bunch of gear. I'll have to sell it like a massive loss or whatever, or even if it's not a loss, just get like a fraction of what it's worth. But gear is up right now, like because the people who have money have money, and then there's also very attractive loans going around, which is why luxury stuff is up and mortgages, you know, anyone who didn't lose things or anyone who either remained neutral or is making more money now, not only has that, but then has access to extremely low rates for loans because they're, you know, everyone's trying to stimulate the economy. So it's a win-win if you had money and if you didn't get negatively affected by that, and then what do you do? You spend money and then you'll buy things that are luxuries. So nice guitars, gear, all that stuff like that, that's selling right now. So it's this, again, it's, it's this weird, uh, right now being the key term, right, right, <laughs> right now, right now is a very important key term because yeah, you're right. Could be, 
two months could be less and it all flips around and like you know these things are very very hard to predict my dad's an economist uh though he's a he's a, a, a macroeconomist and <laughs> one of his favorite sayings <laughs> just so true just explains like how unintuitive uh, a science it is he's like you know uh economists are Able to predict the past with ninety percent accuracy. <laughs> you know, That's a good way to put it. And uh, and the way you, know, you know, because I think people always look to economists to try to sort of predict the future. And one of the best ways he sort of explained is, you know, you have to think of an economist as a, a an economy doctor. So you can do a checkup, and they'll look at the economy like, yeah, things seem to be going well. And then you have a crazy thing that happens, you know, and it's like. Yeah, I mean, just like you might not know that you'd get sick or get cancer or get this or that, you know, like, yeah, we didn't see it coming. But now that you know you have it, you go to the doctor, you get treated. So now economists are the people that you want to treat the thing and they can, that's what they're very good at. But the prediction side is very difficult. So anyone who claims to know what's happening is lying. (laughs) But at least I'd hope that smart people are the ones fixing the problems when they pop up. Do you consider yourself an optimist in general, life-wise? Oof, that's a, that's a complicated question. <laughs> I think I'm pragmatic, is a, is a, a, a pragmatic optimist, uh, you know, realist, whatever you'd call it. I, I account for people and the nature of things and history, you know. Uh, I think that if you look at history, it's hard to be like sort of purely optimistic because you do see the patterns of human behavior but uh, but I also do think that if you look at history, things do tend towards balance eventually. And that eventually, you know, with a capital E, because, uh, you know, it's like a pendulum swing. So you have things going one way and then like, you know, obviously it will do an overreaction the other way. But eventually sort of swings towards the center. I think one of the, the, the best ways I've ever heard the advent of the Internet described is as sort of like a time compressor. You know, it just made progress and things happen so much faster. So what I would hope and what I would imagine, maybe this is a bit of the optimistic side of me is that it would make those pendulum swings, even if they are extreme, which we see nowadays, it's a very divisive time uh, to, to be alive, but like maybe it also means that it will swing faster and reach the center faster. But yeah, I, I mean, I think that's sort of, I don't know what you, you'd uh, peg me as there. Well, I think as a as a human, it's impossible to be hundred percent impartial and just fact data driven. So even if you are a very pragmatic person, I think you still would lean one way or the other and use the facts to either paint a pessimistic or an optimistic picture for yourself. I think that that's just human nature. I I just I think it's really hard to be a hundred percent cold and detached. I just don't think we're wired that way. We can get pretty close to it, but I just don't think we can ever be 100% that way. And so, and then also, even if you are data-driven, you know, you can use the data to create a positive or a negative outcome depending on your outlook and how you approach things. So I think that's, that's why I'm wondering, because when going into something like this, you can look at the data and, uh, look at ways to make the best of it and believe that there's a way to make the best of it. Or you can look at the data, same data and see just as many things that are fucked up, but tell yourself it's too fucked up. Yeah. I mean, I I see what you're getting at there. And I think if it gets to that point, then yeah, I would definitely be the optimist. And 
maybe the opportunist as well, because I mean, you see this all the time where something shifts, it destroys a lot of the way things were, destroys the status quo for a lot of a lot of people and and industries. Uh, and you have people who sort of adapt and those who innovate. Uh, and then you have those who sort of stick to their guns and hope for the best. And generally speaking, you know, those who adapt and innovate tend to be able to work through it. So there are a lot of things that suck that happen in life constantly. Um, and I do tend to try not to dwell on those things and see if there's any opportunities or if there's any, any other angles that can be worked to your advantage, you know, uh, in, in those situations and, and sort of ways to look at things. I think it's part of the reason I've been lucky enough to be successful in music is because we've been able to take that perspective on a lot of stuff. Um, when we've seen a lot of people, you know, the music industry has changed so many times since I've even entered it. And obviously it was changing before then too. And you see that you see the, 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 the companies and the people in the bands, labels and whatever that adapted and the ones that didn't and the ones that popped up with brand new business models. Cause they're like, Hey, things are different now, you know, to adopt that point of view, you'd almost have to be an optimist. Yeah. It's, I think, I mean, I don't know what it's like in other industries cause I don't, I have not in other industries and never really been in them. But I think that because music changes so quickly, we have an over-exaggerated or just a really uh, close-up look at people who do or don't adapt because that's there. There's no long-term stability in this unless you can adapt, and so we're. Whereas I think in some career paths, typically you could stay in it twenty, thirty years doing the same thing, maybe only changing jobs once or twice. We see that this shit shifts every few years and some people either figure it out or don't. And those tend to be the people who we still know 10 or 15 years down the line. Right, so right. it's in our, it's in our face all the time that you have to adapt. I think. I imagine a lot of industries are like this, especially with the advent of the internet, you know, uh, and direct sales. It's the reason why, you know, both uh, horizon devices and uh, get good drums are very lean companies. You know, we don't have many employees. We, we keep it very, very lean because we can. That was not a business model that you could have uh, before sort of uh, internet marketing and uh, people were even that comfortable with buying stuff online. You know, there was a point in time where people were not that comfortable putting their information online. Now in the age of Amazon, everything being direct to customer, that's, that's a complete paradigm shift, which we can take advantage of. So that allows these very lean companies to exist. And now you see a lot of sort of more bloated companies and old school companies that have a lot of employees and a lot of overhead and office space and all that, that are like, how do I get into that without like firing everyone or completely reworking the business model? Uh, because it's very desirable, but it's just from a different era. Um, and you see some co companies adapting, you see other ones kind of struggle or like maybe they're just, just the way they're set up makes it very difficult to adapt to that. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if every sort of, or if a lot of sort of jobs and sectors out there were going through something similar to what the, uh, the, the music industry is, especially like business and art and, and things like that. I wonder if it changes as quickly though, historically, I mean, right yeah. now, definitely. But I wonder if like, if it's one of those things where you can say that it changes every three years or something. Yeah, I, I, reckon you know, you can. I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I reckon you can, especially with engineering. If you think about it, 
engineering CAD constantly updating of programs and you have to keep up with the times that way. And I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. that it goes even deeper than that. Obviously, I don't know anything about engineering at all. But even just like if you take Elon Musk and what he's been doing and, you know, the engineering side of things, I think actually a lot of the other industries are changing just as fast as the music industry, just in a different way. But maybe it's not in the face of us as much because maybe it's not as social media driven as well. I think that's a big part of it. That that might be that might be a big part. Anything that's sort of attached to so- social media kind of just shifts very quickly. And this is kind of what I was talking about, about like the internet just being this time compressor just makes everything change and everything move at a pace that that is unlike anything we've ever seen before. It's like we're we're going through the same changes, but instead of them happening every 10 or 15 years, they're happening every three years, you know, just because of how connected everyone is, how much faster it allows things to, to happen. So I guess uh, the big difference is you can't ever let yourself settle into anything. Whereas maybe in the past you could, even though you knew it would change at some point in the future. I feel like now if you get too comfortable with one way of doing things, you're setting yourself up for disaster. I think that's very astute. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't think that you can ever rest on your laurels, especially now. I mean, generally I was taught not to do that, but like, I think now it's, you, it's something you can't it's afford to death. do. It really is. And, and you see these things sort of change and, and people disappear. And this is why, as I say, I prepare, I, I always prepare for the worst. I have it in the back of my head. Because it may just be that I'll turn into old man yells at cloud in no time. You know, I'll be like, what? It only took five years and now I'm already there. I don't get these crazy kids and all their, their stuff that's going on, you know? So uh, there, there is an awareness of that, you know? I don't think that planning for the worst is a negative thing. I have always kind of planned for it too. And I remember all throughout my life, people telling me I was being negative by thinking about that. And uh, I never... Agreed. I never thought it was a negative thing because, like you said earlier, it's a hundred times worse to get sideswiped by something than to see it coming or at least be prepared, relatively speaking, when it hits. I, th- I think there's a distinction between being prepared and being consumed by it. Like if it's all you're thinking about, yes. then and you're, it's it's not allowing you to enjoy the good things. Then yeah, that's probably bad. But to be prepared, I don't think it's ever bad to be prepared for something. Also, if you're consumed by it, you can kind of help manifest it too. Of course. It's not practical, I think, to be consumed by it. No, no, I I, I agree completely. So I'm not consumed by it. It is something that I think is worth thinking about. I'd encourage everyone to think about it because it really doesn't take that much time or or thought to put a little plan together. You know, and this this whole thing just highlights how fragile this this sense of balance. It's not even a, a real sense of balance, you know? It's just... It's totally fake <laughs> how fragile it is and, and how easy it is to disrupt it, especially with how interconnected everything is globally. Like this, the, this is one of the things that the whole world had to deal with, you know, and you're like, yeah, well, it's a disease that spreads. But even the, the 2008 crisis that because we're so interconnected and so uh, financially interlinked, like that affected the whole world, too. So, you know, this this sense of balance is is kind of fake. <laughs> it's not really there. Yeah. I've kind of always felt like it's a house of cards. Yeah, it is. It is. And I, I could never shake that feeling. I don't know. I could never tell myself that it was, that anything is actually stable in this life, except for the fact that it's unstable. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so on a practical day-to-day level, 
with as much stuff as you've got going on and have had going on, uh, how do you make sure that you're not spreading yourself thin or not, I guess, giving everything the attention it needs? Uh, that is something I'm still learning. <laughs> it's one of those things. I talk about this sometimes. I know that you guys can relate to this. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> I mean, like, this is one of those things they don't teach you. And I mean, I get why. Most people end up in a job where you're supposed to be somewhere at a certain time and you can leave at a certain time and you can usually leave your work at work. We blur the lines with everything. And especially when I consider, you know, I, I had this, this kind of uh, disgusting realization recently, which was like, I think I might technically qualify as retired because I was thinking, I was like, if I, if I just got handed $50 million or something like that, like what would change about my life? And I'm like, I don't think I would, I think my days would be the same. I would just have more, I'd have like crazier cars or something or like a nicer place. Uh, and I'd invest most of it. So like, it would just be kind of the same. And I was like, okay, so this is, this is basically it. And now I just have to manage this. Um, and it's weird when you like what you do because you can overwork yourself like crazy when, it, when you enjoy what you do and then you get stressed and you get burnt out and you don't want to do it anymore. And I've been through that cycle enough times. It's one of those things that's very hard to relate to people who haven't been through it, but everyone who's, you know, in this field and, and, and self-employed, a thousand percent understands what I'm talking about because they've had to learn how to manage their time and find their ways to get some sort of routine or find their system. And no one teaches you this because most people don't end up in this situation. So I just was kind of thrust into this and like figuring out and being like, why am I stressed all the time? Why am I overworked? Why do I, why do, why do I always have too many projects I'm working on that all seem to be, you know, converging deadlines at the same time, you know, uh, despite my best efforts to plan them to, to, to not do that. Uh, and as I said, it's a learning process because it's very easy to overwork yourself and very easy to, the biggest thing I think is learning to say no to things <laughs> once you can afford to is recognizing that you can afford to say no to things and then being okay with it, which is a bit of a mental shift when, you know, you probably got to this point by hustling constantly. <laughs> so is that, and then I, I think like just having a calendar and like just, or some way of knowing and being able to keep up and visually see what it is that you're getting into and trying to make sure you take a bit of time for yourself. I've only recently introduced the calendar into my life. Thanks to AL life changer. And it um, made me realize that I just don't ever stop working. Yeah. It hasn't even really changed with the calendar. It's like, it's currently quarter to 10 at night in England and I'm still working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you see, like, no one can tell you to stop working. And if it's fun, it's just we don't have these these hard lines. And actually, you know, as much as like a lot of people in these industries and a lot of self-employed people or people who want it are like, yeah, man, you're not in that nine to five rat race. What it's made me do is actually appreciate a lot of the good things about a nine to five. Like there are a lot of things that are very easy to take for granted. But the way that it will organize your life for you and will create a very clear distinction between work and, and play, I think is something that really can't be emphasized enough. Like that is that is yep. a really beautiful thing. <laughs> so, of course, grass is always greener. And I'm not saying I regret what any of my choices or what I'm doing, but it's just I recognize that that is actually a, a really massive benefit, which I will have to create for myself somehow. I think that the main problem with people like us is that we don't 
ever have relaxation time. No. Do you know what I mean? Like, don't you, like every single time I go to relax or play a computer game or something like that, I always have this overwhelming sense of guilt. Dude, <laughs> is it guilt or fear? I've, I've been I've been talking to my therapist about this because I need one of those. Yes, you do. <laughs> um, and and one of the best things I've done, I think, you know, because life is going generally well. I think I've always gone to a therapist when life was falling apart, and it's kind of nice to go to a therapist when my life isn't falling apart, and I can like work on things that need to get worked on rather than just trying to fix problems. So I don't kill myself or something, you know? And like, (laughs) these are the kind of things I'm addressing. I'm kind of realizing like the it's, it's so fucked up because my, I'm sure you guys can relate to this. I wanted to design a life for myself. I love playing video games. I love having free time. I wanted to design a life for myself where I could make passive income and like do all these things. I could have all the time in the world. I was like, I could make money playing video games all day, you know? And I went and created that for myself. And now if I ever play video games instead of working, I feel like the guiltiest piece of shit and I'm lazy and everyone else is working hard. And what the fuck is wrong with you? And I'm so hard on myself. And like, I'm saying this out loud. I'm aware of it intellectually, but it doesn't change emotionally that I feel like crap. Like if I just take a day, a lazy day and like try to play some video games and I end up in this like weird limbo where I'm like, I want to play a video game, but I don't want to waste the next four hours. So then I end up doing nothing. Like I'm on like Facebook and or I'm answering emails or I'm doing just random stuff, which is like half work and half not. And I'm like, I could, I didn't even have to do that. I could have just played a video game. And now I feel doubly guilty. So it's a, it's a whole mess. There's it's a mess in there. (laughs) Yeah. It, I think it's because you always know what else has to be done and you're always aware of it. And no matter what anybody says about relaxing or whatever, you're, you know, that there's that thing or those 10 things that you could just be doing that have to get done. And since this is, this life is basically your own creation, just like it is for ours, uh, we're not doing this for anybody else. How can we stop? It's our lives. As opposed to if you're in the nine to five situation, you basically have those limits imposed on you by something external. It's not your company. It's not your company. These are the hours, the end. How do you do that when it's something that you created for yourself? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, well, this is what I'm working on with the, the therapist. And it's also like trying to not feel that guilt because I do deserve time Good off, luck. you know, I know it's a, it's a, it's a tough one. And I, you know, I think it comes a lot from the, the way I was raised and like sort of the importance of, of working and not being lazy and, you know, feeling like you're, you're being productive, but you end up in these like these spaces where you overwork yourself and it's just bad. You're not doing good work and you feel like crap all the time. And it's like, I need to get better at, taking breaks and sticking to them. Like if ever I go like take a little vacation somewhere and I don't have my guitar or like access to like, or if I feel like I can't work on something I'm supposed to be working on for my companies, like I just feel like I feel stuck. I feel like I I can't wait to get back home. And it's like, that's not healthy. (laughs) Vacation is supposed to be a way to relax. It shouldn't be like somewhere where you're like feeling trapped and it's like, Oh, can't wait to get back home so I can get to work. You know? And that's what it feels like a lot of the time for me. So, I, I, yeah, I've got a little bit of work to do. <laughs> do you think it's possible to be a successful entrepreneur and not be that way? Oh, I'm sure it is. 
I think one of the, you know, I think you one know of the, anyone, um, <laughs> <done it? laughs> no, but I think one of the, one of the things, I, I think it's a bit of a fluid conversation. I, I think, you know, even the best people will still struggle with it, but it's just being aware of it and kind of having your, your coping mechanisms because, you know, one of the, the, one of the most insightful things I think I heard from, uh, from my last therapist was, um, you know, I think a lot of the qualities that got me here and the qualities that got you guys where you are, it was easy to justify the negative side of it or to ignore the negative side because of the positives. You're looking at, you know, how, how like work focused you are and how passionate you are about these things. And it's like, yeah. And like, because of that, I, I got where I am and like completely ignore that these are just multifaceted characteristics and traits. So they have good things, they have neutral things and they have bad things. And those bad things are affecting you negatively. Uh, but it's easy to ignore it when you have these sort of trophies or these things to show for the good side of it. Right. And one of the insightful things that my therapist said was like, you know, you can have the good, you, you don't need to have the bad with that. You can separate those. You can work out a way to get just those good things from it which I never thought I thought like, Oh, well, you know, that's just, that's just the way it is. It's, it's this, you know, it's this double price. You pay. Yeah. It's the price you pay. And, so, and, and that's just the way it is. And, you know, and kind of the idea that no, it doesn't have to be that way. You can just take the, you can learn to take the positives from it and learn to deal with the negatives or not let them affect you. Uh, and, and, and awareness is obviously the first step of that. So, Hey man, I'm working on it. <laughs> I can't tell you if it'll be successful or not, but I'm going to try. I think also uh, as you get older, it's harder to justify the negative side of it because your priorities change. And especially when you've already achieved some of the things on your list, you're not consumed by those things quite as much. Uh, like you said, like in some ways you consider yourself in retirement. And so now the job is to keep it going as opposed to when you were not even there yet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you had no career yet and were, you know, a dude on a forum who made his own music, you still had a lot more to prove. And so, I mean, I think it's easier to justify the negatives when you're at that point. Yeah, it is because you're hungry and you're working for it and, you know, but now it's like, okay, you're like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of negative shit here and there's a lot of stuff I don't like. A lot of, a lot of stuff I'm recognizing is, is kind of causing some unnecessary friction so we can work on those things. And it is tougher to ignore that stuff when you're seeing direct benefits of it, you know? And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people go through this stuff. But again, there isn't really a rule book and there really isn't a guide that I'm aware of for people who choose this sort of path. So it seems like a lot of people go through the same sort of patterns. Maybe they have to. I think I wouldn't be surprised if you guys are both as stubborn as I am. Uh, but, uh, you know, Fuck I'm one of those yeah. guys, yeah, I'm one of those guys who sometimes just has to like, for all the great advice in the world, sometimes I just have to make the mistake for myself to learn like, oh, okay. Yeah. I shouldn't ever do that again. You know? So maybe this is part of the journey is like, you just gotta kind of learn these things and look back on it for yourself. Be like, wow. Like, yeah, I probably could cut that out you know? <laughs> or tweak this so that I'm not miserable. You know, it's a learning experience. I kind of feel like it's not a solvable problem, but it's an improvable problem. Yeah. Because I feel like in order to completely get rid of that negative side, you'd have to get rid of it, of the whole thing. Yeah, that's just not realistic. But yeah. I like the way you put that. It's it's not solvable. Because I think 
the three of us think of, you know, we're problem solvers. At the end of the day, that's like what we kind of get off on is solving problems, right? So it's like, this is one of those things that you can't solve and you kind of acknowledge it, but you improve it and and that's good enough. It's like, hey, we're making steps in the right direction. We know we'll probably be working on this for the rest of our lives and that's fine. You know, that's kind of the fun. Or uh, or struggle. <laughs> yeah, it's, struggle a little, it's, a, it's, it's a bit of both. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to me because like, for instance, I took a vacation in December, first time in five years. I can't imagine <laughs> you going on vacation. Well, it was the first one in five years. And uh, I actually, I made it about five days before I started to get antsy. (laughs) But I had like primed myself for months to actually enjoy this thing. And I set up everything around it so that I could. So I worked myself ragged between October and December 13th. So then by the time I went on that vacation, the first five days, I was too tired to work. Yeah. But then as soon as I got my energy back, I didn't want to be on vacation anymore. It's yeah. quite interesting that you remember the date. <laughs> well, yeah, it was the first time in five years. So it was significant. I can't remember, you know, when I came to Florida to record the original Riff Hard stuff, right? I can't tell you what date that was. It's around <laughs> August 8th, 2018-ish. Ah, there you go. You're one of those guys. You know the dates. Jake in our band is like that. He can name kind dates. I, like, I, I have the worst memory ever. Uh, Brown, when was the last time you took a vacation? It was, so we recorded the remainder of the first batch of Riff Hard stuff. And my girlfriend joined me in Florida. And we went to Universal, Disney, and that was in 2018, I think. That was the second batch of Riff Hard stuff, by the way. Yeah, but you just started that with describing work you just did, so that doesn't <laughs> count. Actually, it was 2017, I think, actually, so it was three years ago. Was it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. it was, yeah. So that was the last one, and then a year before that, I went to Cambodia, but um, I haven't been on holiday since. And yeah. I really want to go on holiday. <laughs> so I've been talking, I've been, like, kind of thinking about this, uh, uh Jake, Jake and, uh, and Mark and I have been kind of just discussing this. Like, I actually think what, what would actually be vacation more than anything, and it, this is probably the hardest thing for me to do, would be actually disconnect for like some amount of time. Like, I'm, I was thinking even like I could like somehow disconnect for a week. That's why I went on a cruise. That's why I did that. Yeah, and I'd desperately be trying to get the Wi-Fi to work and paying the 50 bucks a day it costs. You know, (laughs) like that's what happened during the last cruise too. But no, no, I think it's more than just not having it be available. It takes like a conscious choice to like, no, like I'm, maybe like, maybe I don't take my phone, like something, something crazy like that and don't, you know, don't connect to the internet. That's giving me anxiety. It's giving me anxiety. And then it's also like, this thing is like, man, that would be amazing. And it's so unfathomable. I'd have to make so many plans. Like I'd have to let everybody know, like I'm basically dead for a week. You can't get in touch with me. And I'm kind of warming up to that idea. I just want to try it out. Like I actually think it would be like, I could just stay exactly where I'm at. I'm at. I mean, that would take a bit more willpower if I stayed exactly where I'm at. So maybe, but I wouldn't even need to travel far or anywhere exotic is my, is my point. It would be more about this mental state and this commitment to like not be on my phone to not even have my phone. Like, that's a crazy thought, but it's kind of sexy. So I think I might, like, mess with that. <laughs> October 12th, I'm going off grid for five days. Yeah, there you go. Why didn't you tell me this? <laughs> Did I not? I thought I already told everybody weeks ago. 
No. <laughs> well, I guess I told everybody at URM weeks ago that on October 13th or 12th, I'm going off grid for five days. But the only way that I can justify that for myself is to have a bunch of massive projects all launch like in the three weeks before that so that I can basically take the momentum of that and feel good. Uh, so yeah, like I started thinking about it a month ago and started planning for five days in October, basically. So yes, that's kind of what I think you're going to have to do is that's no, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Is like, is like making an announcement and then probably all the little projects are going to be like, okay, well then this needs to get done. I'll be like, okay, cool. I'll make sure all this is done. And then I'll have five days where I won't be connected to the internet, you know? Give yourself some wins before it. So, like, pick a date that you're going to do it and then schedule some things before it that you know are going to be home runs so that you have a good feeling about it and you don't yeah. and you don't go into it feeling like something major is left undone. Like, you know, the problem is, is that there's so many things I'm doing that, like, are just constantly rolling. Like it's impossible. There's just never been a point in time where there isn't something in the back of my mind there, or there's something that I'm kind of wondering how it's going to turn out or whatever. Um, so I think, I think just like being like pretending like it doesn't exist. There've been times like, for example, obviously paying attention to news and social media and all that stuff is very stressful. There've been times where I've had a bit more free time and I kind of look at that stuff, but there's also been times where I've been so consumed with my work that I haven't looked for like three or four days and, I, and I'll miss something like really substantial that happened, but I'll, I'll feel kind of like naively pleasant about it. I'll just be like, Oh yeah, well that happened. But it's like, that didn't affect me and it didn't have to affect me uh, because I got to live in a world where like that didn't happen. I was completely unaware of it. And I know that's like a little selfish, but it was also like, Oh, it was just so refreshing. It was like, yeah, I'm like the world kept turning and I was able to not feel stress. <laughs> that stuff really does stress me out. Maybe it's a little selfish, but that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people look at every single thing that comes up in the news and they try to take on that burden. Yep. At least psychologically. I mean, they're usually not doing anything about it. They're just posting, but uh No, but, but it is interesting. They do take on the burden. They're feeling yeah. it. Yep. Yeah, there and and I don't think that there's ever been a time in history prior to this where every single issue going on in the world pretty much became something that everybody was expected to be so on top of and uh it's unreasonable. Actually, it's unreasonable. It, it registers in the brain as trauma. So it's actually a traumatic experience for the brain to re receive that much data because just for the majority of time our brains were really just designed to know, I think a maximum of 150 people and be aware of like sort of your local area. And then like, you know, even, even a few decades back, you'd know that. And then you'd know things happening on a national level or something or world events, if you were so interested. Right. And if it was a really massive thing, everyone would know about it. Right. But now, you know, everything, everything about everyone and you're connected to everyone in a way. And like, it's too much data. Like your brain just does not have the processing power it's just getting overloaded and it interprets that as trauma a lot of the times, which is why everyone gets all depressed and uh, sad with social media. It's like the ending of Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. 
I didn't watch that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'll have you'll have to fill me in on that one. Yeah, I made it halfway through that movie and I was like, well, I guess I they could, killed I it in the Jones. <laughs> you know what? I actually didn't mind that movie too much. Really? No, like they're obviously it's not as as great as the previous. That's an understatement. Well, actually, it's it's fucking garbage. But <laughs> <laughs> but I, mean, I saw it on a plane. And I turned it off halfway through. So that's how bad, like on a plane, it was like, oh, I'd rather not be doing anything than continue to watch this. I'm so offended by it. <laughs> I think it was at the point where he was in a fridge, survived a nuclear blast by hiding in a fridge. I was like, I mean, I know that you're supposed to suspend disbelief for these movies, but I'm choosing this as the, the bridge too far for me. <laughs> you know? And you think that's any less ridiculous than Die Hard 4? <laughs> no, but, no. But I didn't think that was particularly great either. Oh, there you go. Okay. He killed a right. plane with a motorcycle, right? Yeah. Well, I'm not going to explain it. I'm just going to let you guys need to watch that film. Oh, God. Well, I I'm not never watching know. it, so explain it. It'll, it'll remain a mystery for the rest of my life. It's just yeah. that her brain explodes at the end because she's trying to uh, oh. take in all the information of the universe. Uh, yeah. It's a good, uh, good analogy. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. But we do Perfect. it every day. Yeah, we do. We do, yeah. and it's just like that. If there's one That's good thing to come out of that movie, thing. it was a it was a foreshadowing for the future. <laughs> That's why I don't think it's a bad thing to uh, to take a break from that stuff. Like it's interesting because I think that uh, it's not just that we feel trauma from seeing this stuff. I think there are a lot of people that impose that stuff on you too, and get super judgy about it, especially with the modern the age. Internet. Definitely, yeah. So, yeah. If you're not up on something, you kind of uh, you kind of are putting yourself, I guess, in target range for uh, for people's hate sometimes, which also sucks. So there's this pressure on everybody, not just not just internally, but also externally, to stay on top of everything. Um, it's like a socially expected thing, and mm -hmm. we can say that we don't care about that sort of thing but i think that we all care to some degree what other people think uh, oh absolutely and we all are yeah and we're all subject to pressure from other people so the societal pressure to stay on top of everything isn't helping either in my opinion yeah yeah no i mean like and it's that that's what creates the feedback loop where even though you know that this is you're probably consuming stuff you shouldn't be consuming and you're worrying about stuff you shouldn't be worrying about you get the pressure like well Got to be up on current events. So that's what I'm saying. Like, there's this, like, when I when I kind of just forget to look at this stuff because I'm so consumed with a project or whatever, there's, like, this wonderful, blissful ignorance that comes yeah. out of it where I'm like, hey, I should be chasing more of that. And that's where this, this off-the-grid, you know, kind of just disconnect for, like, a week or something idea is just becoming, you know, a better and do better it, idea. Dude. Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, and the irony of this is I'd have to plan around it and, you know, whatever, but I think I'm going to actually make a serious plan to, like, try it and, and like, you know, just in earnest make a, a, a very good effort to try to do it properly, you know, and not, like, half-ass it. I don't think there's a way for someone like you to do it without planning around it. <laughs> so I would just accept it as the, as how it has to go down. I'm just saying to where, like, the work doesn't bleed in and I don't make an exception because yep. like, oh shit, no, I got to deal with it. Like I could just see how it will just fall apart. 
Like the the little domino that needs to fall for the whole thing to just unravel. So it just be very being. I what I'm saying is I really really want it to work. I really really want to see. And you know I'm even starting to bargain with myself because I'm saying oh maybe five days is more reasonable than a week. <laughs> I'll just copy you and do your five day thing. Maybe that's more reasonable. But <laughs> I want to. Really I really I really want to try it. And I think I think it it could probably only do good for me at this point. Man, speaking of how one little domino can uh, affect it, uh, I almost did that today because I was planning a Q&A with somebody. And typically they happen around, for the Nail the Mix ones, they happen around the 15th. So I was looking at the calendar and I was like, so am I going to take an hour to do that while I'm on this break or not? And I had to actually sit there and think about it. I was like, it's just an hour. <laughs> but no, I planned it for the 6th of October. Good for you. Not not doing it on the 15th. Good for you. It's just, it's just not happening. The end. <laughs> <laughs> it's the little victories. Dude, it's important because I think also what you said about uh, how we can work ourselves too hard and then not want to do it anymore. I do think that that's tough for people to understand if they're not in this sort of thing. But I think it's very, very real where it doesn't mean you don't appreciate what you've got and you don't love what you do, but it means that you physically and psychologically wore yourself out. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because that pretty much happened to me with the periphery like a few years back now. I was pretty much ready to quit touring. I kind of spoke to the band. We were doing a European tour. I spoke to them. I was was like, I don't think I can do another tour like this. And I'd like to discuss you know, what you guys want to do. Like, you know, we could look at fill-in guitarists. Uh, Brownie, your name was floated. Don't tell me that. Yeah. <laughs> he did it once. He could do it again. But like... Do you know um, how stressed my life was in 2011? <laughs> <laughs> Those are back in the years where you couldn't say no to things. <laughs> now you can. No, it wasn't, it wasn't even that, man. I was standing there right in front of Jake when it fucking happened. Yeah. I know what I mean. Like, the least I could do would be like, right... Fuck it. Let's make my life stressful for the next week. Because <laughs> it's yeah, going to be was... infinitely less stressful than what Jake's experiencing right now. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is about Europe. Europe was tough on us for a while. It was just the worst luck. But uh, no, but you came and saved the day. But yeah, uh, you know, I, I was kind of looking at touring. I was like, I just, I just felt like I couldn't do it anymore. Um, you know, I was on stage. I wasn't feeling anything. You know, we'd have like awesome crowds. It was by, by every account, a great night. Everyone else is like, Oh, that was awesome. And I'm like, I feel nothing. And I want to go home. And I'm like, this is also feeling very like for me, like at least you want this to be genuine, you know, um, you want there to be something there. And I'm like, man, this is almost, almost feels wrong. It's like we're charging people and I'm not putting on a show. I'm not delivering what I normally deliver. And it's no one in the audience's fault. It's entirely my own fault. And I'm like, I don't, I just didn't feel like I deserved to be on stage. I didn't want to be on stage. You know, I still loved uh, the band and writing and all that stuff. But I was like, I think I may be done with touring. And I was just burnt out. I was burnt out on a lot of things. I was depressed. And, you know, there's a a lot, there's a perfect storm of elements all sort of converging at once. But, you know, and and luckily, like, my band is like my support group. Like, they're they're, they're the best people. So it's like, I think a lot of bands have been like, okay, like, let's, let's, Let's figure out what we're going to do. But they were like, man, if you're talking about that, then this is a much more serious conversation. And we kind of talked about what was going on and why I was feeling this way. And they're like, look, like maybe you're just burnt out. Maybe you need a break. Why don't we just take a break? 
you know, and management was super supportive. Everyone was super supportive. And that's why we took a year off um, to do periphery four and to do all that stuff really took our time. There was no deadline. There was, you know, it was just kind of like when you're ready to go back out and sure enough, that's what I needed. I just needed some time off. Like it was just too much in everything. And I was just, my whole brain was just getting overloaded. Um, so, you know, that's a very real example of what you're talking about there. And like these things happen so gradually, you don't even realize it. I just thought I hated touring. And now I know for a fact that that's not the case. Cause like I went out and after that and I was like, Oh, this is great again, <laughs> you know? But, uh, but these things can sneak up on you. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you're ungrateful or anything like that. It's a very tough thing to explain to people because people are like, man, you're, it's your dream job. Like, like, oh, suck it up. Everyone's job sucks. And it's like, yeah, I mean, like I recognize it's, I'm very lucky to have this job, but it doesn't, but it is a job. And it doesn't mean that I'm not allowed to think that certain things suck about it or I'm not allowed to be sad about it. At the end of the day, it is just a thing and there's good and bad things about it. Right. So but it's a tough thing to explain to people. And that whole line of thinking made me feel super guilty for feeling the way that, that I felt. Yep. So so it was something I had been repressing for like a year, which didn't help because <laughs> it was like, I was like, no, like, you know, I've made the most money I've ever made uh, in my life. And, you know, we're touring all these places and I bought my dream car and like, I have every reason to be happy. I'm very happy. And it was like, I was massively depressed and my life was falling apart. But like on the surface, it felt like things were going great and I felt guilty for my life falling apart and for feeling bad about it. I felt guilty and I was mad at myself and upset with myself that I couldn't even appreciate how great things are. And of course it just made things worse and worse. And, you know, I was in denial and denial and then everything sort of came to a head. And uh, yeah, that was a, that was a pretty dark time for me actually. Just having the nice car, it's, it's like, you know, obviously it's great and everyone wants a, a fucking Lamborghini or whatever, right? But unless you're happy within yourself, then it's it's just a car, isn't it? It's like yeah, people fail to understand that sometimes. That yeah, possessions and stuff like that is only just a possession until you're truly happy within. It just sugarcoats it for maybe like a week. I knew something was very wrong, uh, and I know that I'll probably lose half your viewership telling this story, but it, because it's it, it sounds so goddamn spoiled, and it probably is. But like, I I, I remember. I bought my dream car, which at the time was a, a Ferrari. Like as, as longer than I've loved music, I've loved cars. Like as long as I can remember since I was like five years old, been obsessed, just haven't been able to do much about it for most of my life. You know, like uh, uh, my parents never approved, you know, I didn't, I didn't get a car when I was 16. <laughs> you want a car, you buy your own. <laughs> so like, you know, it was like, if I was going to get it, I, I was going to have to get it myself. Uh, and they, of course, thought I was an idiot for getting any sort of sports car at any point in time, you know? So this was like totally like kind of my my own journey. And it was like from five. And it's like, I want a red Ferrari because I had a Ferrari F40 model. I finally was at a point where I'm like, hey, I can financially justify it. You know, my dad was like, you're an idiot for doing this. Uh, <laughs> you can afford it, but you're still an idiot. You should just invest it. And he's not wrong. Uh, he's an economist, <laughs> so, uh, but I was like, yeah, like, you know, and it's a bucket list thing. This is something that like for the majority of my life, I was like, yeah, this is just going to remain on the bucket list. There's no way I'll ever make enough money to be able to justify this. Right. And I remember I got the car and that night I cried and I don't cry very often, but like I cried because I got nothing and I felt nothing. 
And it was like, it was supposed to be this thing. It was supposed to be this moment, you know, this like crowning achievement, this great thing. And I was already in a really bad place mentally. And I think, unfortunately, I was really hoping that this was going to be something that was going to like fix me or fix my life, you know? It's like a Band-Aid on a chest yeah, wound. Yeah, it's exactly what it was. And it's like, why isn't this making me all better right now? And I was so disappointed. And I was so, it, it was, it was, and it was like having that Band-Aid ripped off. It's like, oh, there's a big hole in my chest here, you know? And like, uh, it was just, it was just such a, such a weird experience, you know? It was like, oh, this is nothing. And this is just a thing. This is just a thing. And it means nothing and I wasn't even in a place where I could appreciate it because my life was such a mess and I was emotionally such a mess that I wasn't even in a place where I could appreciate a nice thing and enjoy it for what it was. Because obviously there's a lot of cool stuff for a guy who wants one of those things and you know has it on their bucket list and gets it. And I couldn't even appreciate that. That meant nothing. And this was all like sort of leading into that year. That was a tough year. Uh, and, and, and it was made even tougher by the fact that on the surface it looked so good. You know, it looked like like everything was coming together. Like, man, you're you're crushing it. And it's like, I I felt like everything was wrong and nothing was making it right. Yeah, man. And like I went through a pretty big depression from 2016 to 18, 19. And uh somewhere around 2017 or 18, I got the dream apartment. Like something I always had wanted, like on the top floor of a building with huge windows and a balcony with the sky. Like it was awesome. It didn't change a goddamn thing. Yeah. Like I was the most miserable I've ever been in that place. So yeah. I got rid of it. I got rid of it and uh, was, and it kind of just basically, it set me straight in a way because uh, it like snapped me out of caring about things. Now, that's not to say I don't like them i still yeah. like things but i don't care about them like that like i realize they're not gonna they're not gonna really change anything internally more than anything which is why like for example like i talk about my plan if things go wrong like i'll sell those cars happily i'm gonna enjoy them while i can have them but if i have to you know sell them all and just get like a cheap kia or something i i know i can make it through that you know like that that I am finding my happiness elsewhere. And now there are these things that enhance life, but they're not like the key to happiness. I have some of the best experiences that I have in life in a car and I'm really grateful I get to have them. But even if I never get to have them again in the future, I'll be glad that at least I experienced it for a little bit. And I was at least in a place where I was able to experience it because if I was mentally where I was then, I wouldn't even be enjoying it right now. So you know, that's the, that's the dance that you have to do. And it's a, it, it seems like a lot of creatives and a lot of people in this field are very prone to, to mental illness and depression and that, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, maybe it's just a hallmark of the creative musician or it's, it's something that that's just inextricably tied to it, unfortunately, but it, it just seems to be a theme with so many people in this industry. It feels like almost something's missing all the time, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean that's that's uh that's that's a very sort of apt and and concise way to put it. <laughs> but, but also I think that if you're uh, a creative person whether it's entrepreneur or musician it's kind of all the same thing in my mind what you're doing is exaggerating ideas basically you're taking something and making it bigger than it was before uh, or creating something out of nothing and I think that that 
counts for everything. So if you're feeling anxiety, you're going to feel a lot of anxiety because uh, that's what your brain does. It creates more shit. If you're feeling depression, you're going to create more depression. So I think that it it's one of those negative byproducts of having a creative brain is you're creating things. It feeds uh, itself. You have an overactive imagination that can... I've never thought of it that way, but that makes a lot of sense. And it kind of feeds in... It's like in a high-powered weapon that's just aiming in any direction. Basically. Well, it kind of feeds into the... It feeds into that double-edged sword thing I was talking about, where it's very easy to focus mm -hmm. on the good, and then you totally ignore that, like, yeah, it's also amplified. So it amplifies your creativity, where you create all these things and businesses, and it's all successful. And it also amplifies your anxiety and your, you know, all those things. And this is also where my therapist would be like, you know, you can separate those and you can make it not <laughs> amplify your anxiety and you can work on it. So it doesn't do that as much. And it focuses more on just the, the good, you know, but, uh, but that is obviously the, the, the work that's the struggle on that. Yeah. And Brown, to your point about it, always feeling like there's something missing. I definitely do believe that that's part of being creative too. Cause if you didn't feel that way, why would you create anything? Yeah, exactly. It's just part of the condition. It's I'm definitely going to refer to another missing, film. So you're going to create. <laughs> I'm referring back to another film right now, and it's Inception. Oh, okay. You know, at least where, I've seen that one the whole way through. I've seen that one <laughs> yeah, about ten times. The moment that she goes into the dream for the first time and creates, and then she has to come back for it because otherwise it feels like something's missing. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's kind of that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 super interesting because I forget who I was talking to, but I was kind of, might have even been my therapist, I don't know, but like, I, I was sort of explaining like what it is, because I was trying to figure out like what it is that I like about music, about writing it, you know, I acknowledge, I don't think I'm a very good musician, I don't think I'm particularly good at making music, but I just really enjoy the process. And I always give the example of video games. I don't think I'm very good at video games either, but I really enjoy playing them. I don't think you have to be good at something to enjoy it. And I, I, I definitely feel that way about music. But for me, like, I've noticed I don't, if I'm writing something, I don't really listen to it after it's done. Like, I might listen to it a couple of times, but then it's on to the next thing. And really what I think I'm chasing is, like, this flow state. And I, I think you guys know what I'm talking about. It's like every now and then, You'll be in this state where it just feels like things are happening and you're almost watching it happen. And you're watching this song get created. And, you know, it's the reason I work late at night because I, I won't get phone calls or get interrupted or anything like that. And you could just live in this day and just watch this thing happen. And like, that's the dragon that I'm chasing. Like, that is really, that's it for me. That's what makes me feel like I'm, I, I am working on, you know, uh, feeling, uh, feeling the thing that's missing. Of course, it's very temporary. Cause then once it's done, it's like, okay, I got to do that again. And like, it's almost like, I think I've realized it's almost like songs are like byproducts of that. Like the result of that is you'll end up with a song or an idea or whatever, but really like that is, that is the crux of what I'm chasing more than anything. You're a man with the chase instead of the actual. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the actual end product doesn't even I mean, I kind of feel like who gives a shit. Once it's done. Yeah, it's like there for posterity. And, and it's great that other people enjoy it. But like, you know, you know that feeling. You finish an album. It's like, okay, three months of promo and they'll be out. And like, by the time that album's out, you're like, when are we writing this next one? You know? Like, yeah, like I'm over this thing already. <laughs> I feel like that also, though, is part of what keeps somebody from becoming stale with their ideas is so I think that that's also one of those 
byproduct things. And you can look at it as positive or negative because I know there's some musicians who do enjoy listening to their own stuff. But uh, I feel like always needing that next thing uh, and not allowing yourself to enjoy your own stuff is what keeps you creating that next thing. It's quite interesting, actually, this this part of the conversation because... Recently, I've been feeling a little bit negative about my guitar skills, and I probably shouldn't say that, being that, you know, we're on the Riff Hard podcast, but um, last week... Oh, you should say that. Oh, yeah, of course. I think everyone goes through it, but last week I was um, I was at an event. It's called 42 Gear Street. It's with a guy called Henning Pauly on YouTube, and he invited a couple of other YouTubers, and one of those particular people was a guy called Jack Gardner. I don't know if you're familiar with, with him, Misha. I think I think he's a really good guitarist, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Fucking phenomenal. yeah I, I think I I think I'm, I've seen. I don't know where. Maybe it was like some competition or something, and he like did the best solo or something like that. Yeah, he yeah he uh, yeah he just did a competition recently where he was getting people to enter for his. So he's he's oh, a Strandberg okay. in Dorsey. But anyway, I spent a week there, and I was watching him play all these licks, and it kind of lit a fire underneath my ass. Because I just asked Tom Quayle for some guitar lessons. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's another and, one of those guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Tom Quayle lives about five miles away from me. I've never met the guy. Oh, damn. But it's like that thing, because I, I definitely enjoy the same process that you do. It's like, it's the excitement of the creation. Yep. And when And when you finished it, it almost feels like, I can do better than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know? Like, I'm not like, I, mean, I won't put stuff out that I'm not like proud of, but like people, people I think expect you to be like, yeah, like my music's the best thing. It's like, no, dude, like, I think it's good. I think it's good for me, but it, I don't think it's anywhere near the best thing. It's like, I, like, I want it to be better. I want to, you know, find that next level. Like, I know it's there and I know there's so much room for improvement. And then when you talk about guitarists, it's like, People will say like, oh, you know, you know, I can't believe you don't think you're a good guitarist. And it's like, yeah, they're guys like Tom Quayle. Like Tosin is one of my best friends. Like, you know, when when you are surrounded by people who are really just like leagues better than you are, it makes it it kind of puts you in your place. And it's fine. Like I've accepted it for what it is. Uh, it doesn't change how I feel about it because I'm not actually chasing being the best at something. I'm chasing this very abstract experience of getting into the flow state and just you know, really trying to reach that point where like music is just sort of happening. Yeah. I know exactly how you feel. That's funny that you say that. Cause I kind of always felt the same way about my guitar playing was people would say that to me, like, can't believe you don't think you're good. And my answer would always be like, do you know who I play with? Like, you know who I'm around? <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> Those motherfuckers are good. I'm just good at writing or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I think, and you know, to be fair, I think that's where my strength is anyways, is like, is more on the writing side and the production side and the, the creative side. And like, I think when I was younger, I wanted to be the best guitarist. And I quickly learned that that's not a thing. And it's also not something that I'm sort of, I have a natural aptitude for. And I actually have much more of a natural aptitude for putting songs together and like, you know, just kind of overseeing writing sessions and things like that. So that was more satisfying as well. It's also un unobtainable because best guitarist is such an individual thing. Of course. Yeah, whereas like getting into the flow state is individual, but for the person doing it. So it's, 
Yeah, it's a completely different thing. So you know when you've hit it. It's like, that's what I'm yeah. saying. It's like, you know when you're there. It's not a matter of subjectivity. It's like you objectively know, like, no, I'm, I'm in it. I'm, I'm enjoying this. This is wonderful. The you light know? bulb is on. The light bulb is indeed on in that moment. And then like all these other things. Yeah. Best guitarist. Oh, are you amazing at this or that? Like I could be in a flow state and writing objectively crap, but it doesn't matter. I'm still getting <laughs> happiness from it, you know? Uh, so, so I think it's really about chasing that flow state more than anything. I think also it's kind of like chasing the thing you will spend the time on. That's really what matters. I think in the music game is if, uh, if the thing you will spend those hours on is being the best guitarist, then cool. But if that's not you, then you're probably not gonna, even if you like try to force it, you're probably not going to put in the amount of time an effort that one of those dudes who really, really wants it is going to put in. No, you're absolutely right. And you see those guys who are at that level. They are putting in that amount of time. I they can't. I just get frustrated. I just like, Jesus, like, it, I just feel worse and worse about my playing the more I play guitar. Like, you know, people <laughs> practice four or five hours a day. It's like, dude, if I mean, first off, I don't practice, you know, and like practicing is insanely boring to me. It's like, I'm like, I don't play the instrument for this reason, you know? I like to work on my chops so I could get the ideas from my head, you know, out into the real world. But like practicing scales and exercises, man, I have about five minutes of patience before I give up on that. And then there's people who really, really take it seriously. And then, yeah, they have the chops to to show for it. But that's that's where they enjoy. That's where they get their happiness from. So you're very you're very right. You need to find that thing that makes you happy. You shouldn't be doing it like there shouldn't be someone being like, well, you know, you should be practicing four hours a day. It's like if you don't feel like it, then fuck that. Don't practice four hours a day. That's stupid. There is something you'll spend four hours a day on. Yeah. No, there is something. But find what that something is. And generally speaking, it shouldn't be something that you would have to convince yourself to do. Like, I'm supposed to be working on my solo album right now, right? And I am, but I'm at that point where I'm re-recording stuff, which I hate. And I like the creative part. And I was just, you know, noodling the other day. I was re-recording a song and it was going really slow and it was boring. And uh, I was noodling on this idea and I accidentally wrote a song. <laughs> like, I accidentally spent the next five hours writing a song and it was just kind of like that same thing. I don't know if you ever played Civilization. It's just like, just one more turn, one more turn or whatever, yeah. you know? And I was like, well, uh, okay, I recorded it. I don't want to forget it. Well, I'll just program the drums real quick. You know, just, just I don't want to forget <laughs> like the vibe. Well, I got the drums. I might as well get the bass. Oh, I got a cool layer idea. Oh, ew, and I totally hear this next section. Before I knew it, like I had this like four, four minute song and it was six in the morning. And it's like, that's what I spent, you know, four or five hours doing. And it was entirely by accident. Like my goal I had in the calendar was re-record this song, which did not get done at all, you know? And, um... That's what I would spend my 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 time on. So after a certain point, it's like, okay, dude, take a hint. You're not a, you're not a technician on guitar. You're 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 gonna focus on writing. That's where that's where the four hours can disappear into nothing. In the same way that a lot of these virtuosos probably doesn't feel like they're practicing for four hours. Probably like, oh yeah, this is this is happiness. You know. I also think there's something very congruent about what you just told us about writing that and how you're saying that where you're going for is the flow state so it sounds yeah. to me like you're very aware that that's your priority and so when it hits you'll sounds like you'll drop what you're doing to pursue it because that's the priority oh yeah 
That's exactly what happened. I hit it. I hit it by accident. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to squander this. And then, yeah, exactly. you know, next thing I know, I'm going to bed at 6 a.m. And that's just that's just what happens. <laughs> I haven't had one of those sessions in a while. <laughs> uh, you know what? Me either, man. It was because uh, sometimes I'll get like a bit of that flow state, but it'll just be like two riffs. And I'm like, OK, that's all I've got. You know, it's exactly yeah, what happens to me a lot. When I was when I was younger, when I was starting out more. And this is a frustrating thing. It's like I feel like. I used to always be in that flow state. I always used to write a concise idea. I'd say I've got like 75 to 80% of a song written in just one sitting, which is like, dude, that never happened. That never happens these days. So I was really, I was really yep. stoked. I was like annoyed with myself because I didn't get the work done that I told myself I was going to do. But I was also like, well, I can't be too mad. I wrote a new thing, you know? Is that, you still, you still got something done at the end of the I day. I still got something done. It wasn't what I was supposed to do. And unfortunately, the work I was supposed to do is busy work that feels like work, which I don't like to do. So then I feel, <laughs> I don't feel, I feel much less, much more guilty about doing the fun thing that was creative that doesn't feel like work when I had the annoying things scheduled, you know? Uh, yeah, I, but you followed your stated priority. So yep. what's there to feel guilty about? Uh, I'm working on that with my therapist as well because he agrees with yeah. me. But. <laughs> I'm quite interested in this just because we're on the topic of flow states. And you say that you never really write more than 75 or 80% of a song. So I want to know if you've ever completed a song in one sitting. Oh, yeah. Like back in the day, back in the day that that would happen. I'm trying to think the last time that happened. God, I can't remember. It happened to me and it it, the last time it happened was three years ago. And it was, uh, there's a song on Phrenesis and it was sat in five hour session, the whole song, it didn't change. Yeah, it never changed after that. You just nailed no. it, right? We tried, yeah, we see, tried that's beautiful. It and it didn't work and it just went back to the old way. No, 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 that's that's a beautiful thing, man. Like I've, oh, I fucking love it when that happens. Um, I can't think of the, I also have really bad memory, but it must've been a while <laughs> ago because I can't think of the last time. That that's happened, uh, and 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 also I will say, some of this has to do a little bit with uh, expectations because if it's something where I'm like, oh, this could be a periphery thing, I also am a bit aware of like I don't want to finish a hundred percent of a song because by the time it goes through everyone else's filter and we sort of arrange it with with vocals in mind or whatever, it may change. So you don't want to get too attached. You get that what we call demoitis. And then any yep. variation of the idea just sounds horrible because you're so used to it. Uh and I'm hyper aware of that. But like um yeah, um there's there's actually probably a couple of, but these were written like fucking forever ago. But there's a couple ideas that'll be going on the the bulb solo album that were written in one go. And I am very proud of those ones. Uh, and there were ones that were probably not going to be periphery songs. So I, I kind of just went for it, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one, man. Like that's something that I think I've gotten a bit uh, annoyed with myself and I've kind of questioned why, like back in the day I used to be able to write like entire songs in one sitting with relative ease. And now it's just so hard. I don't know if my standards are higher. I'm sure that's part of it. And I, Maybe I feel like I'm. I don't have like I can't write riffs or ideas as as easily as I used to, or I've kind of already explored this territory, and I don't want to just rehash that. You know. I know why I was able to. Why Adderall? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Adderall and weed. <laughs> That's why. Do you also think, to a degree, it's because of the the dividing of the songwriting between multiple people? Maybe because you just you just said that it's in your like you know subconscious that you yeah. don't want to finish something 100% so you don't get demoitis but it 
might also be that you don't want to finish it in case you get attached to it and no one else likes it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let me interrupt for a second. I think that is something because in the Doth days before we had a real lineup and it was mainly me and the other founder, there were times where since there's no one else to think about, I'd just sit down and write the whole song start to finish. Or me and him would sit down and write the whole song start to finish. Once we had a real lineup, you know, and it was like the band that people ended up knowing and I had to think about their input, that really never happened again because I wouldn't allow myself to go there. Uh, so I think there's something to that. Yeah. And actually in line with that, you know, uh, when I write with Jake and Mark, for example, then we will write, like collectively, we will write uh, an entire song in like a, a single sitting. And, you know, having the other guys, it's the reason why it's taken me so long to do a solo album is I don't particularly enjoy writing music alone that much anymore. Like back in the day, I didn't have much of a choice, but now I have way better scenarios where it's like, I've got these people I could collaborate with that have like, I have the best writing chemistry with, and like, they're there to solve problems. If I'm ever stuck, one of them is going to have something, you know, and it's going to be like, oh, this is great. Like, I know exactly where we could go with this, you know? Uh, so writing with them is the easiest thing. And it's actually pretty challenging to write by myself where I have no one to bounce ideas off of no one, even sometimes all they're doing is giving me a yes or a no. And it's like, that will save hours of, of torturing myself, I guess, like wondering like what I could do, what I should do. It's, it's, so it's actually a challenge to do this solo album without that. So, you know, I think maybe that's part of it as well as like kind of like, oh, I'll just wait until I'm with with those guys to finish up this idea. You know, I'm sure they'll help me solve these problems. I feel like most of the time, at least for me, it's easier to write better when there's a collaborator I have great chemistry with for that exact reason. That sometimes when you're writing, you just hit a wall of like, you just don't know where to take that thing next for whatever reason and they might just say one thing that unlocks it for you but if they didn't oh, say yeah. that one thing oh yeah you just sit there on miserable basically no i mean like i think i think a good writing partner is the best cure to writer's block like that that's that's okay. how you solve that problem it's not that i haven't had it i always find it difficult to reach that euphoric flow state when I have any other noise in the room. Yeah. So there's that. So this is where the chemistry thing comes yep, in play because exactly. like, I, I'd say the grand majority of people out there, I don't have that with, but like with my band members and, you know, with, with, with Mark and Jake, like, you know, people are always like, Oh, three guitarists, aren't, aren't the egos all crazy in there? It's like, dude, like we get into this flow state, the three of us, that beats anything that I do on my own. It's like, it's a feel the energy in the room and the excitement, you know, it's like, it just bounces between the three of us and we're just trying stuff. And like, it's why I love writing periphery stuff with those guys. It's why I say like writing a periphery album is the easiest thing in the world because it doesn't have any of that, you know, constant questioning and, and whatever. It's like, you got, it, it's so simple. It's like, do we think it's cool? Yes. Cool. No. Can we fix it? Yes. Cool. Let's fix it. No, we can't. Okay. Let's ditch it and move on to the next thing. That's the flow chart. That's it right there. And eventually you end up with a periphery album and it feels like you've just been playing video games with your buddies the whole time. <laughs> you know, like it's uh, it, it's a really special thing, but it's entirely the, the chemistry. None of us are the best at our instruments. 
But together, we definitely form something that's more than the sum of our parts. Yeah, Brown, I just think maybe you just haven't had that kind of chemistry with somebody because uh, I can, I've experienced it too, and it's awesome. But I've also experienced the opposite where writing with somebody feels even yeah. worse than writing alone because uh, they. No, no, no. It's definitely, it's definitely, it's definitely most people. <laughs> no, it's definitely happened. Yeah. Like on the last record, I wrote two songs with Ollie. Like in the room. In fact, we finished three together in the room. But I think it might just be a mindset thing for me. I think maybe it's just that I need to have something prepared or something rather than just going into it like without anything. I, I don't know. I don't. Well, I'll tell you, it's a man, it's a mindset thing for everybody. And it's not something that happens by default. Like we had to work to get to this, but everyone yeah. also had to be willing. So here's the reality is like if you're collaborating with someone and you're bringing something to the table, you're bringing you. And it's very hard to separate your ideas from... I'm, I'm, I've had this, everyone has had this in, in the band, and I'm sure outside and whatever. So you bring an idea, and it gets rejected or cut, and it feels like they're cutting you, and you suck as a musician, and you suck as a person, you know? It's very hard to separate these things, because a lot of what you write, it's like it's yours, so you're emo it's emotionally charged. So learning to... You know, and this can get into really petty things because then it's like, oh, well, you know, they cut my riff. Well, you know what? That riff's not so great. We're, I think we should cut that. You know, it could turn into these petty, petty arguments. But if you have people who really uh, want to work on it, like you can put the work in. And we did. It took a lot of time. But then we eventually got to a point where we're like, look, like this is not about you. They're like we're all on the same team. We want a sick sounding song. It just so happens that we agree on what makes a sick sounding song for the most part. So that's step number one where we got kind of lucky because people will disagree on that. Maybe maybe it's just that you don't see eye to eye. Uh, but I got lucky and we do, or at least there's a framework within we, what we do. And that is what makes Periphery Periphery and not another band. And then on top of that, like everyone taking a step back and just being aware, like, hey, if your riff gets cut, it's not a personal thing. It's just... It didn't work, but you're going to have riffs. You're going to have ideas and it shouldn't discourage you. And that's again, very easy to say, but, but eventually you, you get the hang of it. And then once that's out the window, then it's like pure creativity because you can just suggest and cut and, and whatever. And it's like, I have these two other minds to work with and I don't have to worry about like, Oh, am I going to offend Jake or offend Mark? If I cut, it's like, no, I've taken Mark has like come with like a crazy, crazy riff. And I've taken like one little section of it and we've crafted a new riff out of it, but then like everyone's stoked and it's like, okay, so that, that, that made something that wasn't there before. And now this is for the band. And it's not about like, Oh, why is Misha always editing my stuff? You know? Um, so, so it's, it's a mentality thing. It's something that I had to practice and, and get comfortable with. And it, it was difficult, but eventually we got there and it sounds like maybe I'll tell you, man, like I wrote with Ollie and that we butted heads. Like it didn't work. But because he came to me kind of un expecting something out of me that I wasn't going to do, and I was expecting him to be in a, a certain place, and Ollie's like one of the most talented guitarists. Like, oh, yeah. he's scary on guitar, yeah. and his ideas, yeah. like, blow my mind. Like, like he was coming with such great, great ideas, but we weren't clicking just because our expectations were different. And we've talked about it, you know? Uh, like, I was still really glad they came, and it, it was great to hang out with him, but, like... We were talking about like how we should try it again, but then really understand like what we're both expecting from it, you know, because I think we could actually get it. But that's an example like where we just have to make sure that our expectations are on the same page. And actually, there's one thing that we did write kind of on a whim with no expectations. And that came together really, really easily. 
because it was like, it didn't have that pressure. And I think he had a lot of pressure attached to his stuff. It was overthinking a lot of stuff. And I thought we were going to kind of just throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And then when we did, because it was like, ah, well, we've already given up and this is just for fun. Then like something amazing came together. So, you know, it's about sort of just finding that rapport that will work for you and, and the people you're working with. How long did it take with Jake and Mark? Years. Years. I mean, like the first album I did is basically just me. Periphery 2 was the first time that we tried to collaborate. And like there was a lot of butting heads and there was a lot of like, oh, you cut this, I cut that, you know. But we talked about it and everyone's introspective and everybody's willing to kind of take a step back and work on it. And and Juggernaut after that, like we kind of, we worked a lot better. And I'd say as of Periphery 3, Periphery 3 and Periphery 4 were literally some of the most fun experiences I've ever had. And they're sort of the benchmark of what I've, I chase for flow state and feeling good. It's they're the reason I love writing with my band because it was just on, it wasn't just Mark and Jake. It was everybody. Everybody came together in a way where it was just like, yes, 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 yes. You know? Um, And I feel like we're still refining the process. Like periphery four was my most favorite experience creating music ever. I've definitely had that because obviously like, you know, when I wrote with Ackle, you know, we wrote, yeah, we wrote Immerse and then obviously riffs got taken from me to use in the other songs as well. And it's happened with Ollie as well. I think it's just not to that level. Maybe it's probably because I've always lived far away from, <laughs> you know, there's that and you, you know, yeah. and you not had as much time in a room with people. And obviously with Fel Salem, we used to jam in a rehearsal space and we've right. never really done that as a, as monuments, you know what I mean? So maybe it's like, I think it's just what you said. It just requires time, doesn't it? And, and, and willingness. And is, I mean, look, there's people out there that like, I thought I would have great chemistry or I thought would be a great fit and end up being a struggle. And then there's other times where I was like, oh, is there anything that's going to come of it? And it just magically works. So there's, it's, there's a weird X factor to this stuff. I do think it can be honed. It did not come like, like I'd say that like with Mark and Jake, what it was, was the raw creativity was always there. And when it would, when we were all on the same page, the creativity was phenomenal, but we'd also be at each other's throats because it (laughs) felt like an attack on each other or whatever. And that was a sort of ego that had to to subside from all of us, me included, you know? And once we got past that and sort of just saw it as like, look, we're all on the same team. We're just trying to get the same prize here. It's not like if I contribute zero riffs to this album, it's still about my input and about being part of the process, being there. Um, And everyone, that's that's true for Matt and for Spencer as well. You know, like everyone's there. Everyone's got input on everything, even if it's even if it's not like, you know, uh, even if it's Matt having a, a input on a vocal part. And the other thing was like, you don't identify problems, you identify solutions. So you can't just come in after like, we've been working for two days being like, eh, I don't like it. You know, it's like, that sucks. <laughs> but if you're like, you know, what if we tried this for this riff or what if we tried this there, you know, you're identifying ways to fix it to where you like it and we'll try it. And sometimes it's better. Sometimes it's not, but it's like, it's just an openness to stuff. So I think, from what you're saying, like you and Ollie are already working on it and you probably will, will figure out a dynamic, but it is, it's not something that necessarily happens just like that. Like and that, it didn't exactly. for us. Yeah, exactly. Every album has been a, a, us working on the process and getting better at it without a doubt. The, uh, I think one of the biggest killers of bands is how shitty they are at communicating. It sounds yeah. to me like that's the thing that you guys 
seem to really have down. Is it's a priority. Communication is. It's something that we made a priority very early on because smart dude. Like I remember it's your like little being, rule. <laughs> what, what was my rule? The little rule on the tour bus: if someone what? pisses you off, you sing at them. <laughs> or, or you just say you, I mean that's a passive aggressive <laughs> If you sing it it sounds less fucked up um, <laughs> You're being a piece of shit right now No I mean like um, That's not that's not like a serious thing Like what, what I'd say is more like Actually if you have a problem with someone Like talk to them Like set some time aside and talk because give them the benefit of the doubt because so many times we have problems where it was like yeah you know they're being like this i'm like talk to them they're like no man like they're, they're not gonna want to hear it it's like you're answering for them you've decided what their answer is and guess what like pretty much every time it was the opposite and i've made this mistake too i've had this mistake made against me everyone's been the problem or you know the 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 one complaining or you know whatever like we've all been in that position or, or both positions uh and it sucks but there is an idea that like the band is bigger than any of our, our bullshit. And at the end of the day, we all love each other and we're friends and we don't want to, we're not trying to make anyone miserable. So if you're not trying to do that and you're doing something that is affecting someone, you have a conversation, most likely the answer is going to be like, Oh shit, I didn't realize that I was making you feel bad or whatever. I'm going to work on it. You know, as long as you do that, as long as you see an effort, like obviously we're human, it's not gonna be an overnight change. As long as you see the effort from there, it's like, well, they're trying, you know, that even if they slip up, it's like, well, hey, man, they're trying, you know, and everyone in the band, I'd say, is very introspective, very much aware, like they need to work on themselves. There's stuff to work on and we're going to improve individually and as a unit. And the only way, like, I, you know, the kind of rule is like, well, you know, if you have a problem with someone and you don't tell them or you're not having a conversation about it and they continue behaving that way, that's on you. How, they're not mind readers. How the hell are they supposed to know that that you have a problem if you're just going to silently let it fester over a tour? And it, and fester is what it does. And then before you know it, you've just got this like galvanized resentment, which is really hard to address. So, you know, now we're just at, at the point where we just talk about stuff and understand like, yeah, if you talk about it, it's going to be fine. It may suck to talk about, but it's going to be okay. It's like having four combined marriages. It's exactly what it's like. And it's a horrible thing like that. <laughs> it's complicated, but, you know, I, I'd say I got very lucky uh, with, with, with my band members. You know, I love them to death. And we have a dynamic where we can, we can improve. So our communication now is great. It wasn't in the beginning. This is a lot of work. And it is not something that happened naturally. I can't tell you how many times, like, we've, we've had some, like, rough fights and stuff like that. But like when push came to shove, everybody was willing to put the band first and take a real, real close look at themselves and what they, they can do to make the situation better. And that's the reason that, that we are where we are, uh, like as a unit, you know, communication is the And I know this is, it's like a marriage or like relationship or anything. It's like the most cliche thing, but my God, like it is the single most important thing for us. Well, a lot of people, say it that's why it's the most cliche thing but to actually do it i think that yeah communication is uh it's more of a verb kind of yeah thing. yeah uh whereas a lot of people don't actually when they say that they don't entirely mean it i think yeah. but uh it does take active active work 
Well, the way I put it is like, it's easy for us to talk about it right now. And like, you know, just, you know, use it like in a rhetorical way. Right. But when you're pissed in the moment, when you're sitting, seeing red and you're not being entirely rational and the other person's not being entirely rational and you're all worked up and it's week three of tour and you're frustrated and hungry and tired. It's like in that moment, you need to believe it enough to where it's still, you know, it's still, it's like, yeah, communication. That's the answer. When every fiber of your being is like, no, it's not. Fuck that guy. You know? And that's, that's the actual challenge. So yeah. Uh, you know, as you said, it's like, it's a verb more than anything. It's something that needs to be treated. Like it needs to be actually used in the moment when it counts and not when we're just talking about it and everything's great. <laughs> That's why it's so challenging because uh, absolutely in the moment you're overpowered. Well, not overpowered if you're if you do this. Obviously, you're not being overpowered by your emotions. But in the moment, it's most natural to get overpowered. By of course, emotions. Of course, it's something we have to train not to do. Basically, we're only human, man. It still happens, you know. Uh, but uh, and like just giving the benefit of the doubt to, to the people you love. You know, like giving them that that uh, a little bit of leeway, being like, well, this is the person I love, this person I know I care about. I know they care about me. They're probably not trying to just be a dickhead to me for some re- or for no reason. You know, like so just giving them as much being as charitable as you can in the moment, you know, which, again, is is hard sometimes, but is usually the right. It's the path to, to happiness. I think that this sort of mindset can be translated to a lot of different things in life, because there's lots of times when we, you know, we do something rash, irrationally, I guess, where we're really angry in the moment and we just sort of explode rather than thinking about it. And, you know, yep. I've, I've done this many times where I've like said something or done something that I didn't really mean just out of anger. Oh yeah. And I'm an expert I, at that. <laughs> Virtuoso. But, but, but even like, you know, even in everyday business, like, you know, just giving it like, even if it's something as little as like 10, 15 minutes, just to actually think it over yeah. and defrag, I guess is probably a good way to put it. You yeah. Know? Like just like absolutely rearrange it in a different order because then you might not be pissed off. Yeah, man. It's it's something where sometimes, you know, you do you do some deep breaths or something, or you just try to like Cool yourself down when emotions are running high because, yeah, I do find that there's a direct correlation to how much I care about someone and how just livid I could get or how much it can escalate. I feel like it's always been like a girlfriend or something like that where it's like in the back of my mind, like, you shouldn't say that. That's definitely the thing you shouldn't say. <laughs> it's You know how this is going to end. And I'm like... Uh, I'm going to say it anyways. It's like, well, we know what happens after you say this, you know, and you say it and it even sounds terrible coming out of your mouth as you're saying, like you already start regretting saying it as it's coming out. And it's like, you're just in the back of your own head, just watching. Well, I guess I don't have control in this one. All right. Enjoy the ride. (laughs) So I I definitely understand that. And that's something that obviously I'm working on. Um, And it seems to be that the more you care about a person, the more you're prone to letting that happen or at least in my case so that's I something that's that i'm working on they're closer to the epicenter so yeah they're gonna get the brunt of it basically unfortunately like the least deserving person the person that cares about you the most and really deserves the most understanding and love will get the shortest leash in that situation <laughs> that's why i think it's really really important to choose who you're close to 
very wisely, whether it's your band members or the person you're dating or business partners. I agree. Because that is going to happen. They, yep. They're going to fucking piss you off. It doesn't matter who it is. They're going to piss you off. And they're going to also get the epicenter of whatever the fuck is wrong with you. Sure. So knowing that that's going to happen, uh, you have to have a foundation there where you actually do love and respect them or else it's going to get destroyed. Because I think even when uh, when someone is out of line, if the relationship is strong enough, all it takes is talking about it later and it's usually okay. Oh, yeah. This is exactly what I'm saying. And what happens is most of, like, not most of the time, but this is the mistake we've made, and I see a lot of people make this mistake. Instead, they don't have the conversation. They make assumptions about what's going on and let it go for weeks, months, and what happens? It festers, and then their idea of this person turns to this weird, resentful version that's evil and that, like, just wants, you know? And the other person might be entirely unaware because they haven't even, they, they might be doing it, but they don't realize it's a problem, so they just continue doing it. And it's just such an ugly thing. And, like, as you said, like, it might be an uncomfortable conversation, but it's over quickly and it's like, oh shit, okay, well now now I won't do that. <laughs> yeah, it's really that simple. It's like shockingly simple. How often have you actually met malicious people? I haven't met that many. Like there's yeah. a few. There's yeah, a few. It's, it's, it's rare. It's not that many. It's, it's rare. rare. And this is yeah. why I say like you got to, especially with people you care, the, the chance that someone... Someone that you got really close with is malicious. I mean, is a sociopath or something like that. I mean, it's happened it occasionally, happens. but no, the major the data just shows that it's not the case. So that's why I was saying, like, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt because most likely they're not being malicious. It's either they're oblivious or they're malicious. And probably they're just oblivious. Oblivious or just being human. Like people can be mean, I think, without being malicious when they're just yeah. Even though the act of being mean can cross over into malicious territory, sometimes they're just reacting to sure. something, a misunderstanding something, not even oblivious, but may, you know maybe they are consciously being mean, but it's uh, the intent behind it is different than if it was coming from a sociopath or a malicious person. And so when you let those things fester and you change your opinion of them and start to turn them evil, it's kind of a distortion of reality, but it is a realistic human thing to do. So it's important, like I said, to choose who you're going to get close to so that you don't want to do that to them. Yeah. Well, I also, you know, having a, like, having a guy like Jake in the band, like Jake is like the Zen master of this stuff sometimes. Like I see how he deals with people in like, in like tough situations sometimes. And like just how charitable and how willing he is to sort of offer them like the best perspective. I'm like, man, like I've got to be more like that, you know? And, and he's just like, yeah, man, like, you know, everyone's got their shit. Everyone's got their perspective. Like no one thinks they're being shitty, you know? And it's like, I love that. I love the way he thinks. I find it personally very hard to, you know, integrate that in the moment. Uh, I'm going to get better at it, but uh, he's very good at it, like in, in heated moments uh, and I'm not, but I, I want to get better at it. Cause I love that. I'm just like, that's awesome. You know, it's such a healthy way to look at it. And it's, and it's actually probably an accurate way for the most part, you know, it just doesn't feel that way because my brain's all weird. It's quite interesting. Like this sort of relates to the, the Tesseract album, the latest one, which, uh, 
when I read what it meant, it kind of like made me think kind of like that. It's like, how do you, you know, even think about doing it like that? But the word sonder, how everyone's life is just as complex as yours. Yeah. It's a really cool concept. It is, isn't it? Yeah. And I've never heard the word before until their album came out. It's like, damn, why didn't I fucking think of that? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I only discovered that through that. And I was like, man, that's a really, that's because I've definitely thought that. I've definitely thought that before. Like, like there's times where I get very overwhelmed, like walking around on tour in some, some country and you just see a bunch of people. I'm like, every one of these people probably could tell me the most interesting story I've ever heard in my life. You know, like any one of these people like has, has probably got like this insane story. That's like, or at least part of it that like would make for like a great movie or something or a great book. And it's like overwhelming. It's like overwhelming. And one of them them has probably just been as pissed off with their mate as you. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah. But um, Al, the word sonder is that. So uh, if you want to read the concept of that, it's pretty interesting because you've not heard of it. Yeah, I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that was a word. Yeah. I've definitely thought that before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just like, yeah. So that like made me think a little bit differently when I was like, that's a really cool concept. Haven't thought about that before. Uh, in that to that level, do you know? What I mean, obviously, when you see people walking around, you can see, oh, they're doing their thing, but never thinking like they've done probably, you know, just as much stuff as you, just in a different way. Um, yeah, but anyway, it just makes me think of this. I don't know why I went off on that tangent, but I did. <laughs> it's a beautiful tangent. <laughs> Thank well, you. It makes it easier to give people the benefit of the doubt. Definitely. Yep. When you realize that. Yep. Absolutely. And I think all this stuff is just sort of being aware of it and like reinforcing it so that when it counts, you can <laughs> sort of feed that in and be like, oh, yeah, remember what we talked about? <laughs> so when you're seeing red, is it kind of like the 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 thing pops up in your head, like chill? Give the yeah. Person oh, the yeah. There's the like definitely like the angel it's and like the devil the breaks, on the shoulders the duking turn. it out. And the, the devil <laughs> usually wins, but the angel's doing doing its best. You know, it's like, hey. <laughs> Hey, this is that moment. This is that moment where we prove ourselves and show we learned our lesson. <laughs> At least the angel's there. That's uh For now, right? That's a good thing. <laughs> for now, right? So we've got some questions here from our listeners for you. Oh, I don't do I'd questions. Like ask you. Goodbye. Right, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> so here is a question from Jonathan Davies, not from Corn. Oh. <laughs> I was hoping. I'm sure his life's just as complicated as Jonathan Davis's life. So it's still, it's still fine. Yeah, it's still fine. So you've got great business aptitude for the modern music industry. Keeping that in mind, where do you see Periphery go next? Oh, that's an interesting question. So I, I think one of the, the best thing that's been able to happen with, you know, with, with the businesses and me sort of making a living outside of the band is the band has just sort of become a passion project. Like, I don't rely on the income at all. I don't really know how much we make. I think ironically, we're actually making more than we've ever made because we, we own the label now and like we own the, the rights to our masters and all that stuff, but it's not a focus at all for anything. So deadlines don't matter touring like none of that stuff matters. And it's really just about pure creation. And that's kind of why I started. I know that's 
probably why you guys start. I know that's definitely how Brown started as well. It's just we're just a bunch of idiots like posting on forums, just making music because you could. It's like, oh, I could do this. You couldn't do this before. And it feels the most like that right now. So I think like that is more that's the goal. The ideal. Yeah, it is. It's it's a passion project again. It's a hobby. And I want it to be that way. And I think with it being a hobby, there's no real expectation. Like, I mean, I guess if people stop going to shows, maybe we'll play less shows, but I can't. And as long as the guys want to keep writing, I want to keep writing. Like that's the, that's my favorite thing. Uh, Second favorite thing is going and playing, playing awesome shows. But if that stops, I'll still want to write, you know? So um, I don't really know what's going to happen, but I just hope it stays a fun passion project. I hope it has the ability to just stay a fun passion project for as long as possible. I have a question here from Alessandro Casagrande. I hope I pronounced that right. Probably not. (laughs) If your career as a musician hadn't gone so well, what would you have done in life? Oh God, I don't like to think about this. I I still would be working at like Radio Shack or the Container Store wondering what could have been. Probably would just do music in my free time. It, It would still just be a passion project, but just work a job that would take more of my time and be less fulfilling. You used to work in Radio Shack. Yeah, that's right. That's where I like kind of when I dropped out of school, my parents were like, okay, like we'll rent you a room at home, but you're not allowed to be lazy. You have to work a full-time job. Uh, and I didn't have a car. And um, there was a Radio Shack that was like a, a five minute walk from my parents' place. So I applied for a job there. I really liked it. I got to do sales. It was commission. Like I, I did pretty well and I was able to make more money doing that working like four days a week than I would have like, you know, any other minimum wage job. So it worked out kind of well. And I just did music in my free time, a lot of Adderall in those days. So that if I'd written all night, I could make it through the day at work, but like, you know, yeah, I'd probably be doing something like that where it's like the job would just be a means to an end so that I could pay the bills and I'd just do music just for fun. I don't like to think about that too much. Cause it's like, dude, I'm not very good at things. So like, I probably would not have, Made it very far. <laughs> I got very, very lucky in this life. All right. Question from Sid Silverstring Studios is, Hey, Misha, what do you feel is the process for a new musician in the metal genre to get noticed in this day and age when social media is overrun, the old forums are dead, and Spotify is an ocean? It's really tough. I'd say the one thing we can't do right now is just tour. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's tough. I mean, you know what, uh, though, though now that people can't tour, I'm sure you guys, uh, have seen and maybe you're taking advantage of it, but everyone's Twitch streaming or live streaming, seeing people get very creative with that. Uh, is a good example of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Or build up a YouTube channel. Um, you know, just find some other way of, of, uh, interacting, connecting with your audience. Um, it may not be, I think one of the things I learned early in this, in this industry and in life is you know, it's good to have goals and it's good to have ideas and it's good to ha- have things that you're going for and chase passionately, but don't be afraid to pivot and know when to pivot. Like yes. the truth is, if you really look at me right now, I'm more of just a businessman than a musician. Like like me, the music thing, it's still actually more like, oh yeah, I do music in my free time. If you really look at like how I make my money and what I do uh, and how I treat it. And that was not my dream. So in a way I failed because my dream was to make a living from making music and be a rock star and be on tour all the time. And the truth is like, I didn't succeed at that. But what I did have was opportunities that sort of allowed me to create a life for myself where I'm happy. And I was like, oh, I actually enjoy these things. So 
I think you should be open to other opportunities and other things other than maybe your ultimate dream and see if you like them. Because I actually like this arrangement more, but I wouldn't have thought that at that point in time. I just had to be open to try it out. And maybe a lot of these people will actually do a really killer YouTube channel and maybe they won't be touring as much, but they'll, they'll have YouTube recognition or whatever. And like that can be their thing. And it should be okay to pivot or they'll have a really good Twitch channel. And I just wouldn't want to see someone like have potential for that and be like, well, that's betraying my original dreams. Like, yo, you've got this. So this is where adapting comes in, doesn't it? Yep. Yep. Adapt. Like just be ready to pivot. If something comes or you, know, it might be like even like, Oh, I never thought of doing this this way. And it's working. Just go with it, man. Like it's tough to it's tough to make anything work in this life and in this industry. So if you can get anything going, just chase that <laughs> if it makes you happy. Oh, well, definitely the same thing as that as well. Like I didn't expect to uh, when I first you know started touring with monuments to do what we're doing now, riff hard. It wasn't right on the radar at all until this lovely bearded man approached me one day. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I really enjoy it as well. You know, it's not touring, it's not being a rock star, but it's still really fun. So I think that's really good advice. And you would have never thought of it. And now that you're exposed to it, you're like, wait, actually, this is really sick. So just be open to that. Don't get too stuck in your ways chasing something um, because, you know, you may end up finding something you like even better. You might even find yeah. something that you prefer to chase in that dragon, Misha, one day. Yeah, it's very... Uh, <laughs> I'm already there. I, I want to be a gentleman driver and race cars, but you know, done with music. <laughs> you know, uh, I actually think that it's, uh, there's a psychological component to pivoting, but I completely agree. Cause I mean, my life is a giant pivot and, uh, I didn't see URM happening either when I started out, but it's like the best decision I've ever made, but there's, it's hard to make that pivot when your whole identity is based on one outcome. So you need to, you need to do the work to be okay with it. Absolutely. But you can also have both of them. Yes, maybe. But it's just being open. It's just being open to not, you know, the, the, the question was like, you know, how do you get your band out there? It's like, maybe it will happen in a way that you're not like, that's a very narrow way of framing it. And it's great if that happens, but if it doesn't happen and you find some other angle, like run with that. You know, that's that's basically the, the short answer. I think that that's like the best answer is find your angle. Find your niche. Because if, if you were to basically lay out a bunch of tactics for how a band gets noticed, well, what difference does that make if uh, if that band, if his music isn't connecting with the crowd that those tactics are appropriate for? What happens if he listens to this five months from now and the landscape has changed? Like, like COVID. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Just handing out tactics doesn't really help anyone unless it's like a very specific. Yeah, it'd be like you, you, you could do like a breakdown on a specific band if you knew their exact, like if you sat down with them for a few hours and broke down, okay, I understand your situation. Here's my advice. But as a general piece of advice, it's really just you got to find your thing and be open to change and pivoting. Yep. Awesome. All the other questions are about guitar. Yeah, that means fine. We don't, we don't need to talk about guitar. <laughs> Isn't this a guitar-based podcast? <laughs> yeah, but... We, <laughs> 
There was one, actually. There was one question. Let me just find it again. So, actually, I guess this is a nice question uh, from Sam Mangan. I'm pretty sure you know him. Yeah. When or will there ever be another summer jam? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I mean, that was already complicated before this COVID thing. <laughs> Because, you know, these it's, it's a summer camp. It was a summer camp we've done a couple times, and it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work, um, if I'm honest. Uh, but it was a really unique experience. But it is literally the opposite of social distancing. <laughs> you can still social distance at an event like that, though. I just went there last week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, you did? No, I went to uh, Henning Pauly's 42 Gear Street. Okay, yeah, yeah, It's a yeah. YouTube event, yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, there was screens up. We were all wearing masks. Okay. God, I cannot I cannot imagine doing a URM summit socially distanced. Yeah, you see, I mean, like, you could, you could do it just, you could do it if you really just, if the goal was to do it. But, like, it would be so different from, like, our experience. Like, we had a real, it was like a bonding experience. It was very yep. close, yeah. you know. It was a lot of, I mean, you know, like... It, it, it's one of those things where even without that, we just, it, it's a lot of time and it's, it's, it's something that we want it. it we want it to be special and we want to do it when we want to do it. We don't want to do it just to do it or just because there's demand for it. Like there will be a point in time where we're like, okay, now it feels right to do it and we'll do it again. But yeah, it might be a while right now. We have other things and it's, it's tough to get us all together for something like that. It takes a lot of preparation and time. Yeah, you're all spread out now, aren't you? You're all over the place. Yeah, and it's not just me. So it's like, it's it's tough. And it's not the kind of thing where it's fair to anybody. You know, it's expensive. So it's not fair to do that and not have everyone be completely in it. Like, so I wouldn't yep. want to do it and be like, and feel like it was a chore or like, oh God, we got to do this. And I think if we did that, like sort of next year or whatever, like it would be like that. So I don't know when we'll do another one. It's very hard to predict. And I will say that COVID definitely made it more complicated because I don't necessarily want to do the socially distant version. There's a lot of stuff and there's just a lot of the vibe that that, that happened from being close, you know, and from not having to worry about that stuff and hanging out, having a good time. And it would just be another sort of damper on things. We'll see. The bonding part of those types of events is it's like the lifeblood of it, I think. Yes, it is. It is literally what carries the whole thing. So that's that's why, why it's why it's worth the price tag too. Yeah, it is because you know it's a lot of money, and then like we're like, man, like I hope I hope that we delivered. You know, I would just hate if someone was like, oh god, like feel ripped off. But everyone was just like, when are you doing the next one? You know, so it seems like people really loved it. But talking about it right now, sort of clinically, it's like, why, why is he complaining about the social distancing? Just make him wear a mask. But like you understand, no. like from having done it, it's like it's about so much more than just being there, showing up and doing the classes. It's all the other stuff. And that would suffer big time. The classes part of it, in my opinion, is secondary. Yeah, we learned that. We learned that the hard way. Like the first time we were on top of it. And then the second one was a lot more relaxed. It was all about the time in between the classes. And like, that's where the real, the real bonding and the stuff happened. That was like, this is awesome. The community basically. Yeah. Isn't it? Yep. 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 And especially like the first day that, you know, people are a little starstruck or a little whatever, but then that fades. And then everyone's, everyone's just a dude, you know, or dudette. And like, that's when it really comes to life and it takes on a life of its own. And like you have the classes and it's great because people do want to learn stuff or whatever, but the stuff that happens in between, that's, what I think everyone is really stoked about. And that's what they always say. It was like, oh, like lunchtime was the best time where we could just shoot the shit and just be friends, you know, and just whatever. And it's like all this stuff 
is going to get so much more complicated with that. I'd rather just wait until we don't have to have that be uh, a factor. Well, let's hope it's soon. Yeah, man, that's smart. I know that we're not going to do a URM summit until the situation is over. Yep. Because first of all, it's super fucking expensive to do. Yep. Like, I feel like exactly what you just said. It's super expensive to put on. It takes forever to plan. Yep. It's expensive for them to pay for it. And to take away the one thing that makes it special, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. It'll sort of just be a clinic. It'll just be sort of the clinic. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, I don't really know if I'm, I want to do that for, for five days. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is a guitar question, but I, I think it's something important. From Michael Forrest, I saw you at a guitar clinic in Glasgow a few years ago where you talked about retraining yourself to hold your pick differently as you were oh. holding your playing back. Yeah. What prompted that change and how did you identify that as a weak spot in your playing technique and how did you go about actually doing it? Or alternative question, have I made that up completely? No, 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 that's, that's entirely accurate. And having Nolly in your band <laughs> who plays bass and is the best guitarist and has like the most flawless technique and tone you know, he'd be showing me licks and whatever. And I'm like, I just can't make it sound right. And I realized it was like the way he was holding his pick. So, I mean, uh, I realize people can't see it, but I never took lessons. So when I grabbed the guitar pick, I sort of just intuitively grabbed it the way you'd grab a lot of things, just like between my thumb, uh, middle and index finger, it's just sort of resting there. And it's not on the side of your index finger, which I guess is the, the way you're supposed to do it. And what effectively happens is it was attacking the string actually the opposite way. And it was giving it a bit of a dull sound and it was making it so that alt picking and a lot of that stuff was kind of awkward. I noticed it never had the even sort of uh, attack or even timing. Like a lot of the trim stuff and all that was just sounding kind of like uneven and lazy and it didn't really like attack the string the right way. For the longest time, I mean, I, I considered it part of my sound. So I was like, oh, well, you know, it's maybe something good to learn. Uh, if anything, maybe I could just learn to play some Nolly licks or exercises or whatever, or just sound more like a like a regular guitarist, you know? It would change my sound, I thought, in a way that was better because I've never liked the way I sounded as a guitarist. I still don't, but I especially didn't back then. It was just something I brute-forced my way through. It sucked. It took about a year and a half because I just learned the guitar. It's like relearning the guitar in a way. Like, thankfully, just one hand. The left hand didn't have to change anything, but like... Um, what I would do is live, like pick a few sections. Like there's a song we had, uh, uh, 22 faces, which had like a trim pick part, which I actually had an Ollie track on the album. Cause I thought it sounded better because <laughs> he was using the right technique and live. I forced myself to do that. And that's just like an open string. It was like, I'd give myself places in the set where I was like, okay, I'm going to switch this technique. And I would like get into the routine. There's something about like playing something every night where like, no matter how difficult or weird it, it, it is like, I'm sure you guys can relate, like after about a week, week and a half, it just becomes autopilot. So like that was sort mm -hmm. of like, like forcing my brain into like, like hardwiring some, some semblance of it. And the idea at that point in time was like, it'd be convertible. I'd switch between the two. I was pretty good at switching between the two stances, if you will. Right. And then eventually I got so comfortable with it. Uh, I think this was around periphery three. That I was like, all right, I'm going to make a commitment to track everything on the album with the new technique you know and if there's anything that sounds better with the old technique i'll just track that that way but as it turned out there was nothing that sounded better with the old technique <laughs> everything sounded better with the new technique sound the way i wanted it to sound and at that point i was still converting between the two at live shows and whatever but actually the first few tours after that i remember 
playing those songs was challenging because I was playing them for the first time in a lot of ways because, you know, palm muting, everything, your hands at different angles. It's like I had to relearn how to play these songs that I'd known how to play, how to play them live, how to play the solos with a new sort of stance, right? Um, so, yeah, it took about a year and a half before it became my default. And now this is how I play. Actually, the old way feels weird now because it's been a few years. But um, it was just one of those things. I was just really unhappy with how I sounded on guitar. And I was like, well, you know, I always am unhappy with how I sound on guitar. But he was like, okay, here is a direct solution to fixing it. And I could already hear when I was just doing open strings with the with the others, the other um, the correct picking technique that sounded better. So I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to go for this and we'll find our way out the other side. And it took way longer than I thought it would, but now I'm really grateful I did it. Reason I asked that one was because uh, this is one of the number one things that I uh, would get guitar players to change in the studio, like the pick they were using, how they held it. It's such a major factor in the way that you sound. Oh, yeah. And it's something that a lot of people overlook. Oh, absolutely. It's because they believe that the left hand is more important than the right hand. Because, you know, with your left hand, you're just picking the string, but there's way more to it. Because it's the last point of contact before the noise hits wherever you're amplifying your guitar with. So it's quite interesting. I think in this style of music too, it's in heavy music, dude, like your palm muting, like where you palm mute, like your right hand determines so much about the yeah. sound, like which I think in other styles is less important or gets can easily get overlooked. But in metal, it would be like the difference between like, why does that dude sound sick and this dude's kind of shot, you know? I actually think it, it's in all styles because I remember when I was, uh, I had guitar tutor um, back in the day. He was called Owen Vaughan Edwards. He's, you've probably never heard of him in the States, but he's pretty well known around here in this country. And he even said to me, like, the right hand is way more important than the left hand in many different ways. Obviously, neither outweigh each other, but the fact is it gave me that focus to think about it at least, you know, and I think yeah. subliminally it was always there, but yeah, like the, the, the fact that lots of people just don't spend any time on their right hand still fascinates me to this day. <laughs> well, the worst part about that is that, you know, it has so much, or it has basically everything to do with timing. Yeah. And we, you, you know, you and I, or actually all, all three of us were from this recording generation. So, you know, you used to be, you practice to a metronome, but yeah. you have no feedback. You could be completely screwing it up, but you're like, I think I'm getting it. But dude, when you're recording <laughs> and double tracking, you have all the evidence in the world. It's like, oh man, like really, really early on that, really late on that. Like you can see a visual references. You can play it back a million times. You quad track something and it's like, if you nail it, you're like, okay, well, I'm getting the hang of it. And it, 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 it will sort of reinforce the, 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 the good habits and whatnot. So, you know, as much as I don't practice a traditional sense, I've gotten a lot of practice playing to a click, getting comfortable with that and, and identifying the problems and, you know, and fixing those things, learning how to read what, what I put down and the right hand, that's all right hand <laughs> for the most part, unless you're doing like pure legato, like, there's your right hand that has to get in sync. And that is a very, very uh, tough thing to do if you haven't practiced that. But you also had kind of a head start because you started on drums. Yeah, I, I'd say it's just a very different thing, you know, like drums. Of course. Is, 
I think maybe in the sense that like you're aware of timing or it's an important thing, maybe. Yes. It's pretty huge. But I think, for example, like there are a lot of people who'd be surprised at how untight their right hand would be if they were double track something for the first time, you know? Yeah, of course. They'd be like, oh shit, like I thought I had that, but I don't have it, you know? And and that's that's more what I'm talking about, where it's like, you know, you have the resolution and the feedback to improve uh to improve that aspect, which in a lot of cases, you could even be jamming with a band and be like, no, it's fine. It's totally fine, you know? Exactly. The metronome in a DAW is definitely what catapulted my sort of playing. Without yep. that, I definitely wouldn't, I wouldn't be playing like I do now without that. That shit, that shit ain't covering up your mistakes. <laughs> it's highlighting no, it's them. not. <laughs> like you, you wouldn't believe. Low gain, too. Uh, those are the two things yep. that... Uh, when I saw the biggest improvement was when I started recording myself and I turned the gain down and yep. just kept it honest. Yeah, that, that will definitely uh, reveal everything right there. And then eventually put the game back up to where it belongs, yeah. fellas, because, yeah. <laughs> well, well, no, yeah, we'll argue about this all day. I know you guys are low gain, low gain crew. Right now I'm in saturation mode. I'm just like, ah, no, no, no. To- I, love, <laughs> I, I love ridiculous amounts of gain for the actual yeah. sound. But no, but if you don't have the fundamentals, it'll be worthless. You'll just be covering up all the, what does that say? I got this the other day, right? And it's made by Jupiter Effects. And it's called Ad Violence. Oh. <laughs> what is that? Is that like an HM2 kind of deal or something? Oh, no, 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 dude. It's fucked. That's all you need to know. It's fucked. I want it. <laughs> so, yeah, I got an, and another one called a Jai. So one's a tape saturator and the other one's like a fuzz. Oh, but it's, okay. It's not... It's beyond a fuss. That's the only wow. way to, to describe it. So, yeah, I mean, I'm all for it too, actually. After this weekend, I got these and I was like, yeah, saturation. Yeah, I'm down. <laughs> yeah, but, you, you know, you'll you'll be able to go knowing that, like, that gain is not covering up a goddamn thing. It is purely for character. Whereas, exactly, you know, The yes. point is that, like, you can hide behind gain and your right hand can definitely hide behind gain. Yeah, like I, I actually do think it's important to practice with high gain so that you learn how to control it, because yep. you know guitar is a is a beast. I've seen people have problems with that because they're like, oh, I just practice on a clean. Like it's like you will never mute no. your guitar correctly then, because you will never understand how to manage like all the ringing strings and and extraneous noises. That, that come from high gain, you know? It's like, you need to do everything. The feedback, too. Yeah. And also, just the fact that everyone now just has a modeler and puts a million noise gates on it. Like, yeah. what was Hendrix doing with his fuzz face and his Marshall stack turned to 11? Yeah, no right? Noise gate. You know what I mean? It's like, it's when you get into that territory, it's it's like relearning the instrument again. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, that's that's the thing is it's like, these things are wonderful when they are there as enhancements and they can so easily become crutches. So that's where you just have to be careful and get the fundamentals down without a doubt. Exactly. Yeah. The, for me, the low gain thing is strictly for like right hand practice. And oh yeah. Stuff to, but not, not for actual songs and stuff. Well, anyways, Misha, I think this is a good place to stop it, but uh, it's been awesome catching up with you. Yeah, man. It's been a minute. It's been it's been a minute for uh, both of you guys. I'd say I'd, I'd I'd like to see you guys soon, but you know. <laughs> well, we have this thing called Skype that we're on right now. Yeah, I know. No, I mean, and this is this is what I've been doing is I've I've been like 
doing a lot more like video calls and zoom calls and, or, you know, like I have a weekly um, call with my parents and my family, you know, we, we, we do one of those like uh, FaceTime things and we all just catch up. I think it's yeah. important to do that kind of stuff. Cause like my parents are actually stuck in Mauritius right now. Oh, they're actually there. Okay. Yeah. They, so they were, they were on vacation there when this hit and, you know, Mauritius being a small Island, they kind of, they just got rid of COVID like immediately they locked down. It's easy to do it. You know, it's a million people there. It's, it's an Island. Like, so they were able to get rid of it. My parents are older. So we're like, Hey, like maybe it's not a great idea to come back to Washington, DC, one of the hot spots of COVID. Plus they just wanted to see their grandkids. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably not going to be able to see your grandkids either. Cause kids are like the, the, the craziest hosts for this. They don't get sick, but they carry it like, like, like you wouldn't believe. So, um, so it was just, and you know, they would have to live a pretty locked down life. Whereas actually in Mauritius, they can, uh, they can be somewhat normal. They have a somewhat normal life, but it means that I have no idea when I'm, this is the longest I've gone without seeing my parents. I have no idea when the next time I'm going to see is, see them is going to be, which kind of sucks. So we we do this weekly call. Uh, I, I highly recommend that if you guys aren't doing weekly calls with your loved ones or family members that you do that, you know, get a nice group call going like we've got going right now. A lot of fun. It's a great way to catch up, shoot the shit. You know, sometimes the Make internet the is good. What you've got, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, and that's all it is. It's like this is the best we can do. So we're gonna we're gonna do this. Imagine this happening in 1995. This was the future, and it's like a video telephone call. You're like, wow, mm-hmm. <laughs> on my nine K modem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like someone picks up the phone, mom, no. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> that would be a very different quarantine experience. Oh, yeah. yeah. Be thankful, actually, that we have the internet. Can you imagine? Yeah. Well, I have experienced it this week because. Oh, yeah, your internet has gone out. <laughs> I'm amazed that this is working because I've been tethering this call off my phone. Oh, damn. Yeah, that my internet went down on Tuesday. I think because of that hurricane. That's right. You were, yeah, you were, you were saying that that's uh but you're, you're okay. Or like everything's okay. Okay. Yeah. Everything's fine. That's good. We, we didn't get the hurricane here. We just got storms and yeah, it's been out in the whole neighborhood since Tuesday. We'll be back tomorrow. But what I can say is quarantine is different without it. Yeah. <laughs> and I still got it on my phone, but it like, it's not like I can just go to a Starbucks and like mm-hmm. upload files or something. Right. It's, a, it's it's different. It's not nearly as easy. <laughs> so, yeah, I feel like uh, things like Skype and the internet are a fucking blessing for this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you guys are ever bored and want to catch up again, you know where I am. Awesome, man. Thank you very much. Just send me your number and I'll just send you memes. Easy. Oh, yeah. You, have, you don't have my number? Maybe it might be an old you, one. You uh, you one hundred percent have my number. Has it been the same for ten years? Yes, it's been the same for ten years. You have my number. You just don't realize it. <laughs> That's probably what it is. Is losing touch with everyone over years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> send me send me memes. Actually, that's the other thing that makes me very happy. I, if you if your meme game is strong, then we will talk a lot. So, <laughs> uh, we'll see. I'll send you a couple. I, 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 I know you well, Brownie. I think your meme <laughs> game is going to be just fine. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, I, I appreciate you guys having me on this. It's a lot of fun no, talking. Thank, thank you. you. Felt like it was a, a nice little therapy session too. That's what we do. Exactly. Please we don't build me. We don't talk about guitar at all. No. no. Well, actually, <laughs> I, I already sent the invoice. 
Yeah, there we go. <laughs> it was worth worth every penny. I know I already said this, but man, members of Periphery are smart. They are quite smart. <laughs> yeah, every time I talk to one of them, uh, it's like, yeah, it makes sense why you've done well. Yeah, it's it just goes to show that it's not just about playing your instrument to that level, but it's also the knowledge of everything else that comes with being in a band and being a musician. And I think the bands that are successful really understand that, at least a couple of the members, but with Periphery, it seems to be all of them. Yeah, which when you think about certain bands, like uh, like I think it's Slipknot, obviously way different level of success, but like, at least at the beginning, apparently they operated like a unit um, where everybody pulled their own weight and uh, they made a point of talking about that. It just seems to me like uh, like Periphery have that figured out on such a deep level. And you can tell from talking to them because they're so good at communicating that if this is how they communicate to me on podcasts, every single one of them I've talked to, then... It's got to be how they communicate with each other, obviously, yep. at that level. And it, to me, when you're communicating at that level, it sounds like you can solve any problem that comes up because you're communicating. Yeah. In a way, I think that they early on just understood that the only way to get through any issue that they had would be to talk about it, kind of like in a relationship, really. Exactly like it. It's really not that different at all. I think that bad communication is part of what breaks up most bands, that and money. But the money just exacerbates the bad communication because there also have been lots of underground bands that don't make a lot of money but who have stuck around for a really, really long time because they got a great relationship and they love the music and they're cool with... Uh, you know, they're cool with their situation. Like, I'm sure Goat Whore does okay financially, but, you know, it's not the biggest band in the world. They're pretty underground. I think they're awesome, but, you know, they're not like some huge band. But I know that the way that they operate, they're a very professional band. Uh, they have the business aspect super down, and the communication between the members is way pro. They're actually the band that showed my band how to act professional and you know it's goat whore like that's a very niche very niche situation um but they make it work and so what i'm saying is you can make it work at all levels if you have your shit together yeah and communication is is, is like you can see it the opposite way around as well like bands that are quite big and they make loads of money, but if the communication's there, then it will all crumble apart as well. <laughs> like Guns N' Roses. Exactly. I just read Duff McKagan's uh, autobiography, and it's like, man, they threw away such an amazing thing. And, like, they, they threw it away. Like, he he's pretty honest in that book without... It's not like a shit-talk fest. It's He just talks about his life and it's more about him getting clean than anything else but he talks about you know the reality of why the band imploded without without the you know without the typical oh axel rose is crazy kind of shit yeah like um 
he talked about it in a very real way. And basically, man, even at that level, even at that level, which is, I think, unimaginable to bands now, unless they're from that era or, you know, I don't think young bands who are like under the age of 25 understand how fucking big Guns N' Roses was. Like fucking huge. And the thing is, you think of Metallica, right? And you know that they're big, but they're not like a band that is that huge and also is like a cultural phenomenon with a bunch of kids too. Yeah. Like, it, I mean, young metalheads like them, but Guns N' Roses was like a pop level act. They were fucking massive. Yeah. And, uh, man, bad communication, bad choices, even that couldn't survive. <laughs> it's quite terrifying, really, isn't it? Well, it, it goes to show how money doesn't fix that stuff. No. Money buys you nice things. Money prevents you from having survival worries. Money money's a good thing, but it doesn't fix communication. And without communication, even the most massive successful projects will crumble quickly. Do you reckon that's what happened to Pink Floyd as well? I don't know much about Pink Floyd. It's just that they sort of disintegrated and then the members didn't talk to each other for years. Oh, well then I'm sure that's what happened. <laughs> it was probably just that they fell out when they were on acid or something. <laughs> I mean... You know, so people were talking about how with Guns N' Roses, like, it was the drugs that broke them up. And from what I understand now, yes, the drugs didn't help, but that's not what broke them up. What broke them up was their fucking communication skills. It was uh, not handling problems right. It, was, it wasn't that members were doing drugs, because people do drugs in a lot of really big bands. Yes, they do. And it's it's yeah. about how you, if you're going to do that, you have to handle yourself in that situation as well. And in big bands, they still do it and they can still handle themselves and they still, you know, communicate. So yeah, it's just the communication, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, there's, I'm not going to name a band right now, but there's a band that is huge, huge. And uh, I know, and they've been around a long time. And I know that they uh, they still love their coke, but they uh, they operate like a family and a functional family that is, um, <laughs> and they have kept it together. So not that look, I'm not I'm not advocating that people develop drug habits or anything like that. What I'm saying is that at the end of the day, uh, the thing that the the make it or break it is the communication between band members. Yeah. Now, something really interesting that he was talking about too that I could really relate to was the writing partner thing because I know I said it during the episode, but like I always felt when I was writing that there was something incomplete if I couldn't bounce off of somebody else. Like I could never make it as great as it, was supposed to be without the input of somebody who I trusted 
I know exactly what you're saying. I guess to a degree with the first Monuments albums, that was kind of Swanee because he used to help me arrange a lot of it. And then on the recent album I co-wrote with Ollie, Mike got involved as well uh, on some of it as well. So I, I think to a degree having a second set of ears, well, at least a second set of ears, just kind of takes you outside of your own bubble. Yeah, exactly. And it's an, it's it doesn't mean even that everybody has to write an equal amount or anything like that. It's more just that uh, sometimes we just don't see the path forward or there's certain possibilities that are like the solution to the problem that we're just not going to come up with because we're not. And uh, sometimes just having the right person who has the right kind of insight, like, have you change one thing or suggest a different note can unlock the rest of the song, whereas you may have never figured it out. Exactly. It might just make it tenfold better. And even just as Misha said, you know, like not having the ego if you're if someone else is to take your riff out. It might just not work in that song. It doesn't mean that the riff's bad. It just means that it's not for this song. Yeah, exactly. The the key though is having people that you respect musically. So that's that's key. You can't just write. If people are listening to this and just are, go get some random writing partner who's not very insightful musically, well, that's not going to do any good. It needs to be somebody that you have good personal communication with, but also who musically gets it and who musically you feel comfortable with. That's really, really important. It sounds to me like that's what they've got. And yeah. I think that a lot of people don't have that. And uh, so I think it's cool about Riff Rescue, man, because I think that a lot of people don't have the luxury of having someone like, uh, you know, Mark and Jake <laughs> yeah. to bounce off of. Like, those are some great people to have as your writing partners. Most people don't have that. And so to be able to basically have you as a writing partner is such an advantage for somebody. It's just a different perspective to look at it. Like, you know, um, we all, when we're writing, we all get tunnel vision to a degree. It's happened to every single one of us. Sometimes we get into writer's block and I don't necessarily think that we get into writer's block. It's just that everything that we right we just think is garbage so with riff rescue i will take a riff of a member of riff hard and i'll show multiple different directions in which it could go by using the parts that are already there and i feel like as guitar players we tend to just think of riffs as blocks like once you've got your verse i was like i need to go and write a chorus or i need to go and write something else and we never really try and expand on the ideas that we have and riff rescue is good for that not only Am I going to be your second set of ears to reassure you that what you've written is good? But I'm also going to show you... Or not. Or not. Yeah, or not. <laughs> but if there's three solid notes in there in a rhythm that, you know, inspires me to write, then that means it was good. It wasn't a bad riff. Do you know what I mean? It inspired something. Yeah. And it's understanding those things. If you've written something bad, understanding that something good could still come out of it. Sometimes you just need somebody else to help with that. Um, and I'm sure that people don't have the benefit of having a John Brown to just write with all the time. So 
you know, Riff Rescue is the next best thing. So if you're looking to get a new perspective on your riffs and basically have John help your songs, go to riffhard.com, submit for Riff Rescue and uh, watch your songs get awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Or, well, actually, it's not happened yet, but it will happen one time where I will make it worse. <laughs> well, uh, I'll tip a beer the day that happens. Thank you. <laughs> All right, man. See you next time. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Rip Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.